Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be discussing the participation theodicy. My guest today is John Buck, who you might remember from episode 100 of this podcast. John and I debated the existence of God, and something that came up a couple times was John's participation theodicy. So I thought it was worth taking some more time to talk about the participation theodicy that John brought up during our debate. You know, as I say in the conversation, it was a debate. I was kind of keying in on a couple things that I don't like about the theodicy. I had to do it in a fairly short time frame. And here we actually have the space to expand on things, more carefully explore the terrain, and not just talk about the limitations of the theodicy, but some of the advantages it has over other theodicies. And though I certainly don't think that the participation theodicy is capable of accounting for anything like all of the evil in our world, I think it's at least a jar that's on the table to make use of an analogy that'll become clear as our conversation progresses. But I think we explored some interesting territory here. Ultimately, I think it was a productive and collaborative discussion. You know, I think that's more what I'm aiming for these days, something that's a lot more collaborative in spirit. So without further ado, here's my conversation with John Buck. Welcome, everyone. I'm Emerson Green, and I'm here with John Buck. So, John, why don't you say hello and um, tell the people a little about yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is John Buck. Hello, everyone. Uh, I am someone who does, like, I don't know, Twitter apologetics, basically. <laughs> I don't know. I mostly just joined Twitter to, like, argue with people about abortion and then later discovered philosophy of religion and, like, arguments for God's existence and stuff like that. And so... And now I'm not really, I don't know, now I'm really happy and just like I found a niche group of people that we all disagree with each other, but it's fun to like bounce ideas off of each other. So yeah, I don't really have like any content of my own that I produce. I like made a video a while back about T-Jump's biggest blunders, but like besides that, I do nothing. And um, as of late, I had been thinking about a uh, sort of response to the problem of evil that I sort of dubbed the participation theodicy. And I recently... Well, for one, debated Emerson Green on the arguments for God's existence or like the plausibility of God's existence. And I utilized that during the debate. And then after that debate, I also wrote up a sort of short five page paper on the participation of the Odyssey. And then just recently, this past month, I uh, wrote a little bit extended version of that, like about 10 pages now that, um, yeah, I guess we're going to be discussing today. Right, yeah, I forgot to mention that, that we had that debate a while back, which I think it was a good debate. I think it went really well. And yeah, we talked about the participation theodicy a little bit, and, you know, you know, it was a debate, so I was just kind of going through all of my criticisms of it. But here, I wanted to go through some of the, you know, the features of your theodicy that I think are, like, actually plausible and actually good, you know, so I want to start off at least talking about the advantages that it has and that it probably can explain some amount of evil in the world. But yeah, so should we just get into the uh, participation theodicy now? I mean, like, we 
yeah, might as well get there. Yeah, that sounds good. So yeah, this is a uh, argument that I've been working on primarily um, in consideration to the evolutionary animal suffering that has taken place within our past history. Because it, it seemed to me that a lot of the responses to the problem of evil were very almost anthropocentric. <laughs> but for myself, I, I, I love animals. And so like I, I have deep care for the, the animals that are out there. So um, what I'll just like basically articulate the theodicies that like something that would be very good for God to do would be to create an ideal state of the world uh, in which creatures existed within it and were happy and like living together in harmony and all these things like that. And that would be something that would be very good for God to do. That would be something perfectly aligned with God's moral, morally perfect character and all of that. Um, and then we could also consider like, well, let's suppose um, in considering the types of actions that creatures could do, what would be like the very best thing that creatures could do? And it seems like it would be the very same thing. Like, oh yeah, the very best thing that a creature could do would be to bring about uh, a perfectly ideal world in which everything was in perfect harmony and things were living in, uh, happily with each other. And so if this would be a good thing for creatures to do, and it would also be a good thing for God to do, then for both God and creatures to do this thing, it's just gonna sort of amalgamate. And so it's gonna be feature more goods that are there um, and so if it would be good for God to sort of create an ideal world, uh, it seems like it would almost be better than for God to create a world in which it's not the case that he just creates the ideal world spontaneously ex nihilo, but rather includes creatures in the actual bringing about of that world. So um, it's not just the case that God creates an ideal world, but God and creatures do it. But the thing is, in order for creatures to contribute towards bringing about an ideal world, those creatures would have to first exist in some type of world. But it couldn't be this, the type of world that is already ideal, because then they wouldn't be actually bringing about that ideal world. Like, it's not the case that I can make a pie when I already have the pie in front of me. <laughs> like, I, I have to start off without that pie there. And so similarly, in order for creatures to causally contribute towards bringing about an ideal world, those creatures would have to first exist within a non-ideal world. And so any non-ideal world is not going to run perfectly smoothly. It's not going to be the case that everything runs perfectly according to plan or in a perfect ideal way that we would hope things to go. And so if it's the case that things don't run perfectly according to plan in an ideal way, then there's going to be some evils that can occur that are just not going to be for any greater purpose. And so that's kind of the idea that, um, and then from that sort of line of reasoning, you could apply it to specific evils if we want to later on, but at least that's sort of like the general schema of the theodicy that, yeah, in order to allow creatures to contribute towards bringing about an ideal world, those creatures would have to first exist within an initially non-ideal world so that they could contribute towards the idealization of that world. And that's going to be, I guess, uh, a significant, re uh, that's going to be part of the reasons as to why God might create an initially non-ideal world in which gratuitous suffering or evils can occur. But you do grant, you know, unlike many other theists, that God could have created a much, much more ideal world or like, you know, started us off in heaven or something like that. Like that was possible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I do sometimes see theists like arguing that, no, in order for good to exist, evil must exist before that. And it's like, is that really the case? Because <laughs> it seems like for any good that we say requires some evil before it, it seems like there's a way in which God being all powerful could just sidestep that evil completely and just have that good. Even if it was like um, some examples that are sometimes put out, like 
the good of forgiveness. Like in soul building theodicies, they want to say that, oh, there's these certain goods like forgiveness. But in order for forgiveness to take place, um, there has to be some sort of wronging that has taken place. So it must be the case that I wrecked your car, Emerson, and I have to go to you for forgiveness. But it could very well be the case that I thought I wrecked your car. It turns out it was just fine. But yet there's still that good of forgiveness where I'm being repentant and you're forgiving me. And then we both look at the car like, oh, there's no mistake here. <laughs> it's like uh, there was no actual harm that was brought about. And so similarly, for any other sort of argument, uh, for any other good that we might suggest, maybe there's some that um, do actually require it. But at least like through a basic. Yeah, order, yeah. No, I was I was going to say forgiveness is one of those ones where I feel like you can't really avoid like it does need evil like you do need some actual transgression to occur for like genuine forgiveness to exist but i would just kind of question the balance of good there where you know like you think of the transgressions that people uh, you know th that occur like th that you know the horrible horrible things that people do to each other and you think like oh well, the forgiveness is kind of like better it's like a greater good in some sense than all of the evil things that people do to right. each other and it's like I don't, I'm not so sure about that one. Like when you start sort of filling those in with concrete examples, start imagining some horrific things that people do to each other and being like, well, forgiving someone for doing that to you is actually like worth the cost of that happening. It's like, uh, I don't know, you know, you don't exactly have to be like a utilitarian to, uh, mm -hmm. to notice that some things are better than other things. And like, maybe the goodness of like forgiving a rapist or a mass murderer or something like that. Um, doesn't really explain the existence of the uh, mass murder or the rape or, you know, whatever else horrible thing you want to, whatever other horrible thing you want to fill in the blank there with. But anyway, yeah, I, I, forgiveness is good, sure, but like, <laughs> and I think it is necessary. Um, yeah. For but forgiveness yeah. to exist, there has to be actual transgressions, but. What you're saying is like, it seems like, at least according to my theodicy, God could have created the ideal world spontaneously without any contribution of creatures, but it's still better that creatures were able to contribute. But in order for them to actually contribute towards that ideal world, they would have to exist in a non-ideal world. And in these sorts of non-ideal worlds, there's going to be these possibilities for uh, sins and errors and other evils and natural sufferings that can take place. So. Yeah. Yeah. So let me um try to explain the participation theodicy in my own words, and then you can tell me um if you agree with it or not. So, um, the, say we have state of affairs one, you know, and that's kind of this ideal world that you're talking about, and it's objectively better than state of affairs two, and it's within God's power to bring about state of affairs one, you know, whatever he heavenly, you know, ideal state you want to talk about, but mm -hmm. he chooses to bring about this kind of lesser state, state of affairs two, um, in order to allow his creation to participate in the creation of the good and the elimination of evil. So he generously, you know, you talk about God's generosity as kind of being one factor here. He generously invites us to contribute, to, uh, you know, collaborate in bringing about a better world. So, for every state of affairs one that I'm talking about here, like, you know, state of affairs 1A, state of affairs 1B, like, we don't have to be committed to the idea that there's like one best of all possible worlds or whatever. There could be many, many, to quote Sam Harris, there are many peaks on the moral landscape. Um, yeah, so, you know, we don't have to say there's one best of all possible world, but for every, like, state of affairs one, there's state of affairs one star, which is exactly like state of affairs one, but it's the product of collaborative creation instead of a unilateral divine act where he just kind of ex nihilo created state of affairs one. Um, so state of affairs one star is better because it features certain goods in it, namely 
creative participation, which State of Affairs 1 just lacks. So creating State of, State of Affairs 1 star ex nihilo is just impossible um, because the causal history of State of Affairs 1 star is the relevant difference that makes it better than State of Affairs 1. Um, yeah, so it's otherwise identical, but one of like one has this causal history and the other one doesn't. So the central claim of the participation theodicy is that God's choice to bring about this like lesser non-ideal state um, is justified by the goods that would have been absent without the causal history of collaborative participation. Yeah, and like uh, especially something to keep in mind is that the state of the world one is going to also be included within the state of the one world star because it, that eventually leads to uh, the state of the world one. So the, the ideal state where things are going perfectly. It's just that it wasn't created ex nihilo by God, but rather it was through the causal history of creatures contributing towards bringing about that ideal world one. So it seems to me that if creaturely participation is a good thing and that ideal world is a good thing, then it's going to be the case that state of the world one star is going to be better than just state of the world one because it features all the goods of, oh, sorry, because it features all the goods of state of the world one plus the goods of creaturely contribution in bringing about that state of the world one. So, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, this is uh, like a crucial part of the argument, at least, you know, as I'm like processing it, this is some, something that I've like latched onto is the idea of causal history and like asking whether it matters. So, you know, it seems like a pretty common objection, you know, from plenty of atheists that like, well, look, God could have created us in heaven. He could have created a better world. Um, you know, why didn't he just do that? <laughs> um, but, you know, I do kind of think causal history matters in a way that um, some people seem to reject. So um, this one analogy um, kind of made it clear to me. Like, imagine that you're living in harmony with another person um, for many decades. You've been married for most of your life and you love each other. You're in a blissful state of well-being. And then it's revealed to you that you were just created five minutes ago with all these memories. Um, does that really seem the same as, like, actually having that causal history? Like, in one case, you actually have all that causal history, and in the other, no, you were just created ex nihilo, and, um, you know, you're just in that state to begin with, and you just, like, you didn't actually have to go through all that stuff, you know, because there was a lot of, you know, pain and suffering. It wasn't all just, like, rainbows and sunshine the whole way there, like, to this, like, state. It took a while to get there. Um, yeah, so there's something about that that just seems illegitimate. I would not want to be created ex nihilo in a relationship with someone. There's something about that that would seem... Uh, kind of off to me, you know, I would rather have the causal history. So, yeah, I mean, sure, there's, and so I think that that's, you know, a legitimate good, you know, there are goods that exist in the scenario that don't exist in the ex nihilo scenario. Um, yeah, so there's more good in this world. There's also more evil, you know, so like there's more good and there's more evil when we're, we start off in sort of a non-ideal state and then like transition to a, a more ideal state. Um, there's more good and there's more evil. But I'm not sure that that's really a problem. I think that if you're committed to the idea, like to some abstract principle, like, oh, you, you know, yes, there's more good in the world, but there's also more evil. So it's actually not justified. I think you have to be really careful with that sort of principle. It might commit you to implausible positions like antinatalism. You know, like when you bring a kid into the world, there's more good in the world than there would have been if you didn't have that kid. It's also more evil in the world. You know, there's more suffering that wouldn't have existed if you didn't have that kid. So I think you have to be careful with how you state your objections to the problem of evil. Um, because, 
you might, you know, accidentally commit yourself to some really implausible things, you know, depending on how you state it. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think there's more evil in the world. Yes, you know, like as, as like if your participation theodicy like does explain some things, but there are also more goods in the world, and I actually do see the value of those goods. Like I think causal history actually does matter, and you know, it is arguably worth it, at least in some cases. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, that's definitely a good point, especially because like bringing a child into the world, it, you have to really think about the fact that, yeah, if I bring about this person into the world, there's going to be a new subject that is going to face a lot of hardships and sufferings and uh, horrible events that might happen to them. And it seems like you have to sort of think about that with the fact that like, well, bringing them into the world, I'm going to be providing them with an existence that would not have been had otherwise. And so, yeah, by bringing them into existence, you're opening up the opportunity for bad things to happen to them, but you're also bringing in the opportunities for a lot of good things to happen and with that you would hope would be there for the, the child. And so I think that's going to be a sort of similar or somewhat analogous way in which like God in deciding to create creatures is going to decide, okay, well, I know I could create these creatures all by themselves, uh, spontaneously generate them in the ideal state of the world, but I could also create them in a way in which they could do the very best thing that they could do, which would be contributing towards that ideal state of the world. And so I know that there's going to be a lot of evils and sufferings that could happen as a consequence of this, but I still realize that, no, this would be the very best thing. Well, this would be a very good thing for them to be able to do. And so I'm going to provide them with that opportunity to do that very good thing. And so I'm going to create them in this non-ideal world so that they could contribute towards the bringing about of that ideal world. And and just to, for the record, I'm not saying that anyone who criticizes the participation theodicy is going to find themselves committed to antinatalism or something. Yeah. I'm just saying you have to be careful with what you actually say, and like especially when you're putting up some abstract principle, you know, that might sound like plausible at first. Like if you were to say something like, "Oh, well, it's never justified to bring suffering into the world if you could have avoided it," right. you know, like you could say something that sounds kind of plausible like that, and then you realize like. Oh, well, hang on, then it, it, that might commit me to like, or, you know, like it's immoral to have kids or something, right. you know, so you have to be, I'm just saying you have to be a little more refined. And mm-hmm. it's something that I've seen, it's not really a problem with like professional philosophers, but I'm just saying like in casual discussions about the problem of evil, sometimes atheists will stake out these really extreme principles or whatever. And it's like, uh, I, I don't know. And also, I think that when we think about uh, these sorts of moral dilemmas that might pop up, there's this, uh, the trolley problem where you're faced with the decision to like kill five, uh, kill one person in order to save five. There's a sort of weighing out of like, well, I know this would lead to a very bad thing, that person being killed. But I also realize, okay, if I flip the switch, that's going to prevent this even worse thing from occurring. So that's going to be what justifies me. It seems like there is this sort of, ethical uh, ethical position known as like the doctrine of double effect where even if you foresee an evil will occur as a consequence of your action insofar as you did not intend for that evil to occur you can be morally justified for basically acting in such a way that you know it will lead to this negative outcome so like it's not the case that when somebody's flipping the switch they wanted that person to be dead unless of course maybe they happen to be like a malicious guy and like oh this works out quite well for me. I get to kill my boss and also save five people. That's nice. Um, but but just the idea, yeah, I know this is going to kill that one person. I really wish that wasn't going to happen, but nonetheless, I'm going to do this and for the greater good, I guess. But the analogy isn't quite exactly the same because for God, he's acting on the basis of like trying to create a world in which creatures get to causally contribute towards an ideal world. So it's not him 
like preventing some greater evil. It's rather like for this great purpose, God has reason to create the world. And so that's what's going to allow him to sort of like flip the switch, let's say, in which certain uh, evils can occur that he would foresee is like, yeah, I know that in this non-ideal world, there's the, going to be the possibility for lots of evils and uh, sufferings to take place. Right. There, there's more evil, but there's also more good, you know, namely the good of like creative right. participation yeah, um, exactly. as opposed to just kind of, you know, unilaterally ex nihilo creating this like perfect state of bliss for everyone. And then it's like, you know, um, so I guess like I, I'm tempted to like start moving into like objections, but I want to spend a little more time like just talking about like applications, I guess. Um, you know, so how might this uh, interact with like the problem of hiddenness? You yeah, know, yeah. Like, if we're talking about um, non-resistant non-believers, you know, reasonable atheists. Um, so your your participation theodicy isn't just like restricted to the problem of evil you know you think it might have some like wider applications as well yeah exactly so i think that what one thing that i appreciate about like in thinking about the problem or the participation theodicy further is it allows me to sort of like accept a lot of the intuitions that atheists might sort of put forward on offer and i think like uh just uh, jl schellenberg really uh gets at something right that like for a rational creature to be in a relationship with God would be the greatest good that could be had for that rational creature. And I think that, um, yeah, God would be inclined towards allowing that rational creature to be in union and relation with him. Uh, and so God would have reason to create that rational creature to be in relationship with him. But if that would be the very best thing for a rational creature is to be in, in un a, a unitive relationship with God, and God could do that God could create that create that God could create that rational creature imminently in already in that relationship, or he could allow creatures to contribute towards bringing about that relationship. Seems like allowing creatures to contribute towards bringing about that relationship would be a greater good than just God creating that creature already initially right off the bat, already in that perfect relationship with God. And so that's going to give God some reason to create a world in which it's not initially the case that all rational agents are perfectly in relationship with God. And so I think that J.L. Schellenberg's argument, in order to go through, at least in the logical form, is going to require that, no, for every single moment of existence, there must be this uh, opportunity for non-resistant non-believers to always be in perfect relationship with God. But yeah, in order for rational, uh, in order for creatures to contribute towards bringing about the world in which uh, all rational agents are capable of being in perfect relationship with God, they must first exist within a world in which that's not initially the case, a non-ideal world in which some atheists might not have the capacity to enter into a perfect rational relationship with God at this moment in time. But maybe through further speculation or contribution of creatures or like consideration of natural theology or maybe even in the afterlife through other uh, means as well, that's the fact that they can eventually uh, arrive at this sort of explicit knowledge or belief in God, then that's going to give God reason to, okay, uh, give God, I guess, moral permission to create a world in which that good of universal um, rational relationship with God is not yet had, but eventually yeah. could be had. Yeah. So like, if it's good for people to help each other, you know, to help each other, like, reach a relationship with God or to, like, better understand God, then there has to be some initially non-ideal state where there are lots of people who are not in a relationship with God or who have this really flawed relationship with God, and then people help each other 
achieve a more like right relationship with God um, or have any relationship with God. Um, but yeah, in order to, ha so if you think that's a good, you know, it's like actually a good thing, you know, the world's actually better because of it, you know, that we have people helping each other um, achieve a relationship with God, um, then yeah, you need to, it's necessary that you have people who are not in a relationship with God and then people can participate in bringing everyone, you know, into uh, into this thing that's intrinsically good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the intrinsic good of being in relationship with God is not going to be initially had so that creatures could contribute towards bringing about that intrinsic good. Yeah, that's, that's the, right. That's just, the every, yeah. Everybody, like, I've, I'm committed to just being like, no, we're just going to steel man this theodicy. Like, every time I'm saying something, I'm like, but, you know, <laughs> like, I keep having these, like, objections pop up, and I'm just like, no, just wait. Um, okay. So, anyway. So uh, they, yeah, yeah. That, that would be at least how this theodicy could respond to, say, the problem of divine hiddenness. And if you want, we could sort of go into somewhat like the argument from teleological evil. Yeah, yeah. No, you, you mentioned, you know, earlier that you are, like, moved by animal suffering. And yeah. a lot of the typical answers to the moral evil that we typically focus on that involves human beings just doesn't really translate very well to animal suffering. Um, especially when you go back for like the eons and eons of animal suffering in evolutionary history, especially when you notice that some of this suffering is the result of natural systems that are designed such that they create suffering. You know, like things just acting in accordance with their natural purposes, animals are suffering. You know, it's not like uh, things are being, like there's some perversion of faculties or like something is being misused or it's a byproduct of something that has no purpose. Like, the purpose of large teeth and sharp claws is to assist in predation, you know, in tearing creatures limb from limb and eating them alive. Like, that's exactly how, that's the design plan, you know. Um, it's like, it's literally malevolent design. Um, so why anyone would ever infer that, like, this was designed by, like, a morally perfect being or even a good being is, like, beyond me. Like, I think that, you know, you are just going to have to grant at some point, like, God didn't design that, uh, you know, maybe because he doesn't exist or maybe because of some other crazy reason, but um, seems pretty odd. Like, even on your theodicy, like, do it, I mean, I guess I didn't ask, like, how do you think that uh, this teleological evil came about? Like, was it actually designed by God or, like, did he kind of set natural selection in motion and he knew this would happen or, or what? Yeah, so the way that I sort of think about evolution, and I don't even know if this is like tele uh, this is really theologically laden or just sort of like secularly laden as well, but I see that what drives the adaptations and, and uh, traits that get passed on is going to be very much dependent upon the actions of the organisms that it, as they exist and act within their sort of ecological niches and their environments. So when we observe this new adaptation taking place of, let's say, sharp teeth being evolved by fish. Yeah, there, yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's some fish that don't have sharp teeth, of course. But um, so, yeah, it seems like what's going to be contributing towards this uh, is not just going to be like God being like, you know what would be a fun design right now? I'm going to institute predation sort of faculties. Uh, no, it's just, it's, it's going to be the case that creatures in their uh, actions, their their decision to, let's say, mate with that other fish is going to be what contributes towards their uh, genes being passed on and then further adaptations taking place from those parental sort of relate those uh, relationships that take place and then 
from their adaptations occurring that will span much further on down the uh, evolutionary chain. And so it's not the case now. We can always argue, like, yeah, but did the animal really like decide to do that? This isn't a free will theodicy. This is this is also something to take into consideration. We're not existing within the ideal world at this stage. So we could say that in an ideal world, uh, creaturely faculties would all be designed towards uh, I don't know mutualistic relationships with other organisms or at least not savagely killing and devouring right. each yeah, other yeah. you know like we wouldn't have physical and psychological attributes that are aimed at like harming right. other creatures right exactly and so in order for creatures to contribute towards bringing about that great good of a, a world in which all our faculties are adequately designed towards their the the end of mutualistic uh relationships we would have to first exist, and by we, I'm just referring to creatures in a broad sense. Creatures would have to first exist in a world in which that was not initially the case. So those creatures would have to first exist within a world in which it's possible for mal uh, malicious traits to evolve, um, because that's the sort of thing that can occur within a non-ideal world. And so we can we can fully grant that an ideal world that God would be uh, interested in bringing about through the contribution of creatures would be one in which malicious traits cannot evolve uh, because, I don't know, there's some sort of like security measure in place that prevents that from occurring. I don't know, maybe gene editing or something like that. But in a non-ideal world, in order for creatures to contribute towards, that's going to be a type of world in which these sorts of malicious traits can evolve. The very fact of like very sharp teeth or venomous fangs and uh, porcupine quills and a lot, lots of other uh, very predative, uh, predative <laughs> faculties that are out there yeah that's sort of the general idea though yeah i mean it's getting harder and harder to avoid bringing up some of the objections because like obviously the first thought that occurs to me is like you can't get rid of predators like you can't get rid of predation like it would you know wreck havoc on the ecosystem like it would like, I mean, getting rid of those psychological and physical attributes in predators is like not, I just don't really see how it could happen, like without really just like killing all of them. Um, it seems like you're just gonna have to kill all the predators like one way or another. And the idea that like, oh yeah, everything else will just remain perfectly fixed in place. Like all we're like, we're just going to, um, you know, rip out the spine of the ecosystem and then everything else will just be fine. It'll be exactly the same. Like, no, it won't. <laughs> like, right. I don't even know if it like, you know, we're like moderately altering like the chemical composition of like the atmosphere and you see all like the dramatic changes that that has had. Yeah. And it's like, oh yeah, but we'll just like eliminate predation or something and then it'll all be great. Like, no, that I just like, I have, I don't think I'm being excessively pessimistic when I think like that will never happen. Like even if we could somehow, you know, like through gene editing, get rid of predation, you could not get rid of predation and expect you know, everything else to remain more or less fixed in place. Like it might even just collapse, you know, like I just don't understand. So I don't think we really have the capability to mm -hmm. eliminate predation or teleological evil, you know, like predation being the most like striking example of tele teleological evil. But, you know, when you talk about like venomous snakes who have these sharp fangs and like, you know, poison that, you know, obviously the, the point is to cause harm to, to, like other creatures like that's what it's supposed to be doing and like i said i'm not totally sure how you get rid of that without just killing all of them you have to just make it so they like don't exist anymore <laughs> um 
yeah, and like I said, I'm not sure we can do that. And even if we could, there are like further complications there that ultimately amount to we just can't do this. Like we can't get rid of teleological evil. It's like inextricably built into the world that we inhabit. Mm -hmm. So how could we contribute to like getting rid of it? Right. I think something we should take into mind is not that like my theodicy makes no commitments as to how close we actually are towards like achieving the ideal world. It could very well be the case that we are billions of years off from actually idealizing the world. And if we're billions of years off, it could very well be the case that human beings go extinct. Uh, and maybe there's some other creatures that are like higher forms of uh, human beings or some other rational animal that sort of takes the, the uh, highest position in regards to the food chain that they're capable of doing so. That's like a wild speculation. I'm not like <laughs> defending that or anything like that, but just making the point that yeah, there's going to be a long time scale in regards to bringing about the ideal state of the world. And it would be highly anthropocentric to think that, oh, yeah, we're going to be the ones that sort of finish the job. Uh, when, in fact, like we could just be one major step, I guess, in regards to reaching that idealization point, but not necessarily the most important step. It could very well be the case that we're similar to the dinosaurs where we had a good run and then went, went off the map. Uh, that's one idea. And then the other is, yeah, just in regards to, it's not the case that we ourselves are going to be capable of actually bringing about the ideal world. But there are things that we can do that can help contribute towards the bringing about of it, eventually the ideal world. So it might not be the case that human beings are in any position in which to sort of like rid the world of animal predation. But it could very well be the case that human beings are more capable of, I don't know, providing food for other human beings throughout the world. And like, that's something that could theoretically occur given uh, human beings' capacities. And if that they could do that, then that would be a good thing for them to do. And so God would have reason for allowing cre us human beings to do, to provide that sort of good to other creatures. Um, yeah, I think those were two of the main points. I feel like there's one more, but maybe not. Well, you do have this like general, you know, strategy of just saying like, well, you can point to any non-ideal thing and yeah. you can always just say like, well, yes, it would be good if that didn't exist. And again, like going back to like state of affairs one and state of affairs one star, it's like, yes. So right now we're in state of affairs two or like some variation of it. And like, yes, you've correctly identified that like this other state of affairs would be better. But if we causally contribute to the like bringing about of that better state of affairs, then you know, it kind of justifies the creation of this, um, you know, initially non-ideal state. Um, so do you have any, like, skepticism about whether or not it's worth it? Like, when you're looking at, like, predation and so on, or, or just, like, even, we, don't, we can move away from teleological evil if you want, but just, um, are there cases of evil where you're, like, it's just not worth it? Like, even though, yeah, we could maybe causally contribute to the end, the elimination of this evil, or the bringing about of this good, or maybe some future creature might, um, well, would it really be worth it? You know, is it really worth the high cost of this evil existing? Um, wouldn't it have been better if it just didn't exist at all, and then the good of participation doesn't actually justify the existence of this particular evil? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, especially since, I don't know, there, the way that I 
want to think about the theodicy is not so much a sort of weighing out the goods and the evils and then saying, oh, well, we have more goods, so therefore we're going to be doing that. It's more so thinking about like, okay, what are God's reasons for allowing this to occur? And are those reasons going to be sufficient in allowing them to occur? And so, yeah, maybe there, that is going to be a major point of contention. It's like, well, there's this much evil. Is that really like, there's going to have to be a lot more goods in order for this amount of evil to be justified. Um, but I don't know, there's a sense in which like that sort of like weighing out of... It, it doesn't have to be put in like utilitarian terms right. like that. Like you can put it in other terms. Like yeah, yeah. I don't think utilitarians are the only people who are allowed to say that some things are better than other things. Right, right. No, that's a good point. And, and like uh, this is actually probably a good area in which I should like explore further because I haven't really done any reading in the literature in regards to horrendous evils that uh, take place. And so maybe it is the case that horrendous evils have this sort of nature behind them to where it's like always impermissible to even allow the possibility for them to occur, None, irregardless of what sort of goods could be brought about um, due to the fact of allowing those evils to occur. So yeah, maybe that's an area in which uh, my uh, theodicy would have, I don't know, some shortcomings perhaps, I don't know. Uh, so well, yeah. You did mention earlier that you think more like along more like deontic lines. Yeah. And you know, I wasn't actually thinking of like intrinsically impermissible evils, but now that you bring it up, that is like a good point of like, there must be some just intrinsically impermissible evils. and even though, oh, we could participate in the elimination of that evil, like, it still wouldn't actually justify God's decision to, like, allow that to exist, yeah. because it's just intrinsically impermissible to uh, to let that happen. Yeah, I remember in our debate, somebody was asking, like, are there any evils that would, like, go against your theory or anything like that? And I brought up the example of, like, well, if when we looked in our past history of the world, and we were noticing a sort of like downward trend where things were getting increasingly worse over time, that would seem strike me as like evidence against the theory, because it seems like in order for this theory to really work, we have to say, no, there is some sort of like incremental, uh, almost like a teleological aim towards this ideal state of the world that we're moving closer towards. Maybe it's not the case that we're going to reach it anytime soon, but at least we can acknowledge, yeah, if we look back, 400 million years ago, things were a lot worse than they are now. So maybe there is a sense in which we have this sort of upward trajectory. But I think also kind of what we were bringing up earlier is like to the Thomist who says that, yeah, God could create an infinitude of like animals suffering for all of eternity with no hope for escape. That seems like the type of evil that would just be automatically impermissible for God to allow. And so, yeah, if it were the case that there were a lot of instances of things like that taking place within the world, then that would not be the types of evils that this theodicy could uh, account for. Okay, so if the general, so if you're talking about what would disconfirm my theodicy, then it's like, well, if the axiological arrow was kind of pointed down, or just kind of was going around randomly, yeah. you know, like then, um, you know, because you, yeah, you you do kind of need like a, an arrow of improvement. You know, like if things are just constantly getting worse, and it's like, right, right. Like, yeah, like, um, our participation is, um, it's actually, yeah, it's not very good because we just keep making things worse. <laughs> like, we're our, our causal contribution is just, uh, you know, constantly fucking things up in new and impressive ways, and like, that's pretty much our main contribution. Um, yeah, so, yeah, intrinsically impermissible evils, that would be one thing, and uh, yeah, the other one would be like if the axiological arrow was doing anything other than kind of at least slightly slanted up, you know? 
Mm-hmm. But you, I mean, I take it you do think that things are kind of improving on like a cosmic scale or something. Yeah, we would have to take this sort of like cosmic timeline to sort of recognize. Yeah, I mean, there was this point in which there were no living organisms that had the power to reproduce. And then there was this point in time in which, yeah, there were living organisms that had the power to reproduce. And so the very organism itself has this power to like generate another organism similar to itself. And that's like a sort of multiplying of a, a, of a good things there through the actions of a creature. So that's actual participation. Now, of course, it's a very minuscule amount of participation because like, well, how much greater is it the fact that we have two amoebas <laughs> rather than just one amoeba? Not much, uh, if any. But the, also the fact that, no, we also recognize a sort of like um, upwards in quality of the types of good things that exist. So it's not the, just the case that, oh, God created a world in which one amoeba can lead to two amoebas, which can lead to four amoebas. And then we have this vast amount of uh, a high number of very small good things. But actually, no, the types of things that are occurring, we get single-celled organisms into multicellular organisms. And then we go from fish to amphibians and then mammals. And yeah, there's a remarkable sort of diversity of creatures within the world that each themselves are like a locus of intrinsic goodness. And so the very fact that they exist is going to be a good thing, even if it's a a small good thing, but, uh, and the fact that those creatures through their actions are able to participate in the bringing about further good things down the line and not just the further amount of good, further amount of good things, but the further type of good things, like the very fact that there are rational intellects in the world, like at least one of them in this call right now and how, (laughs) (laughs) and and how, uh, yeah, the, the very fact that like, creatures contributed towards that eventual bringing about is really remarkable. And I think it's, yeah, when looking at it from a sort of cosmic scale, uh, you can sort of recognize this sort of upwards trajectory slowly (laughs) taking place. So do you think that it matters whether or not creatures have any knowledge that this is what they're doing? You know, we've talked about this a little bit, but like, it seems like most of the things up to this point, basically, like we're the first ones ever who had like any real like knowledge of this like creative participation and like for the previous 13.8 billion years, like, you know, nothing really knew what it was doing. Even if you do accept something like panpsychism, it's not like these really complex rational faculties existed before humans evolved. So no one really knew they were participating in this like great story, you know, like no one knew they were like causally contributing to the existence of all these goods that wouldn't have existed or wouldn't have existed without them. So um, does that matter at all uh, for you? Like that, many creatures like other than humans and even human beings like just because right. we're capable of recognizing this doesn't mean that we actually do recognize it yeah. most of the time yeah. um yeah so does it matter that we don't really have any self-conscious awareness of this participation no it's a really good uh, point and it's a point that i wish i had brought up in my actual paper so uh i, I don't know if uh, we mentioned it actually but i, I wrote a 10-page paper just recently yeah and uh, that'll probably be in the description below and I wish I had actually mentioned it in the paper because, yeah, there's a significant, important uh, component to participation that that is sort of required for my theodicy to even make any sort of traction. And it's this uh, assumption that the creature that's participating must be like intending to participate in some way. Um, so, like in I've in another paper that I think I eventually edited out. Uh, there's this idea like, well, what if God like created an angel that was just like Inspector Clouseau, always fumbling around and like doing things accidentally. And he happened to create the, this ideal world through, I don't know, some spur of the moment and accidentally tripping on something. And then boom, I just created the ideal world. Would that be the type of creaturely participation that would actually be like intrinsically good and, and 
in order for like God to allow it to occur. And it doesn't seem like that's the sort of thing that like makes much sense. So yeah, I do think there must be some sort of intentionality in regards to the creatures towards bringing about the the actual effect. Now, I don't think it needs to be a purely rational intentionality because like there's this uh, example that we can bring up of like uh, like say a bomb sniffing dog like that's used by the police in order to sort of like scope out an area and to determine whether or not there's like a hazardous bomb on the premises. And I have no idea. I, I don't think that the bomb is aware of like just what it is that it's really doing that it's like actually seeking out this thing that would be hazardous for society and is actually preventing that sort of terror uh, terrorism from taking place. I think the dog is probably just like doing what it was trained to do and thinking like, oh, I'm a good boy or something like that. <laughs> and it's like, but it's still like nice. Uh, I don't know. It still seems to me that it's like a good thing that we're able to like include dogs as part of like our human society to allow them to actually like contribute towards our securing of our society so that these horrible things don't take place. And yeah, it's not the case that dogs are aware of just what they're contributing towards the world um, and, and uh, the um, safety of our, the human race. But I think that just the fact that the dog is doing something and is like, is motivated to do that thing for its own ends is still going to be like good that, yeah, they were able to contribute towards this good end, even if it wasn't the end that they perfectly had in mind. Now, right. yeah. So, so they're even in the dog's mind, they're doing a good thing. They just don't really understand the extent to which what they're doing is good. Right. Um, so, you know, that's why Inspector Clouseau is relevant because if there was some kind of like Rube Goldberg contraption where it's like, oh, and in ways that you can't see, like all these completely morally neutral events are somehow collectively producing this really great outcome it's like i mean like who cares but if every little individual part like thinks they're doing a good thing at least on some level mm -hmm. um you know that actually does seem relevant and then yeah at some point it might be revealed to them that like and that good thing that you were doing it was actually even better than you know you had actually mm -hmm. thought so even if you're not consciously aware of participating in some kind of broader arc towards you know like this really great outcome um i think as long as you think you're doing something good then mm -hmm. that seems like you know not a totally implausible response whereas like yeah if people are just kind of like fumbling through things and like accidentally creating really great outcomes it's like that's a totally meaningless form of participation yeah you know yeah that's actually really good because it's not just the fact that yeah, accidentally contributing towards the ideal world wouldn't really be something worth uh, worth it for God to bring about. But also, like, if it were the case that somebody was, like, acting maliciously and that somehow, like, contributed towards the ideal world, I'm not even so sure if that would be the sort of thing that God would be inclined towards, like, bringing about. Now, maybe if it were the case that somebody already was going to have this malicious intention and then God was able to, like, still use that for some good purpose, like, I think in the, uh, the story of Joseph and his... Uh, 11 brothers, there's that idea that, yeah, what you intended for good, God actually intended for, or sorry, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And like, maybe that's the case that, yeah, that's a sort of like, uh, I don't know, sort of like cleverness behind God. But yeah, it seems to me that like the types of participation that God would be inclined towards uh, allowing to occur would be the types in which, yeah, creatures are trying to do something good or from their perspective is good. And then from that action, they actually are contributing towards bringing about something that is really good, but even greater than they even could have imagined it to be. 
So um, to return to, uh, you know, two of the primary objections that I have to the theodicy is just that there seem to be some instances of evil that we just can't do anything about. Um, there's no chance that we could ever participate in the elimination of those evils or, you know, hypothetical good things I could imagine. It's like, well, there's no way we could bring that about. And there are other things I would add that, you know, it's conceivable that we could eliminate this or that evil, but we're not going to. And it's like completely predictable that we're not going to. Um, so it just seems like uh, given the cost of the existence of that evil and given the very, very low odds that we'll ever actually do anything about it, um, it doesn't really seem like it justifies the uh, the evil. It would sort of be like, um, you know, giving someone a lottery ticket for free versus like, you know, paying like an absurdly high price for a lottery ticket. It's like, yeah, there's like this minuscule chance that something really good will happen. So, you know, why not? Like, I could see why that would be a good thing, obviously. But then if that, if playing that lottery comes at a really high cost, then it's, it's not worth it. You know, so it seems like in the cases of evil where, okay, well, it's possible to eliminate this. It doesn't quite seem like, you know, teleological evil or like evil natural laws uh, to borrow Quentin Smith's term. It's like, okay, we can't eliminate evil natural laws. Like you said, there would have, it would have to just be like a different type of being like human beings cannot eliminate evil natural laws. So if anyone ever participates in the ending of evil natural laws, it will be some other being that we probably can't really even conceive of because like we can't do that. And then there are other things, you know, that we, that, you know, this, it would be within human beings power to, um, you know, alleviate like poverty, for instance, or like protect the environment. So, you know, life could flourish on earth for a long time. And, uh, you know, we're not going to do that. So, um, you know, it just seems, but it, it just seems so predictable that that wouldn't happen, you know? So it doesn't it, like God's choice to bring about particular non-ideal states. It just doesn't really seem justified. It would be like, you know, buying that lottery ticket and it's like, and I'm going to cut your uh, pinky off, you know, in order for you to like play this lottery or something. It's like, it's just not worth it. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, there's two points there. Uh, I want to first address the concern regarding, yeah, there's all these things that human beings could be doing to really contribute towards the embetterment of the world that we're just not inclined towards uh, actually doing. And it's unlikely that we actually are going to do anything about that. And I think that the uh, theodicy uh, is going to bring up the fact that, yeah, we don't exist within an ideal configuration of like the, the causal history of the world. And so like, yeah, it would be really great if we were all morally inclined to do the very best that we can towards uh, the creatures around us. But, and, and that sort of moral inclination would be something that we would find within an ideal world that would be worth bringing about. But if, if, if it would be good for God to bring about that sort of world, then it would also be good for creatures to bring about that sort of world, which would mean those creatures would have to first exist within a world in which it's just not the case, that everyone's moral inclinations are going to be perfectly honed in on that which is the most good. And so it's just going to be the case that in this sort of causal history prior to the ideal world, there's going to be a lot of instances of creatures that are just not going to have perfectly morally inclined inclinations. And so there's going to be a lack of uh, moral motivation or just general apathy towards uh, the suffering of our fellow man that's out there. And so, yeah, while it's the case that uh, we can't do, like, in our current position, we can't do very much about all the evil and suffering that is there in the world, there is still what we can do in our given situation. And, and so, like, it's just going to be the case that whatever can be done from our current vantage point 
is what should be done. Um, and so that's what's going to sort of be expected and also is what's going to be utilized by God to actually lead to the contribution. Now, um, and then there's the other area uh, of the evils that are just not even feasibly going to be affected by human beings or even like future organisms uh, that might be to, uh, like generationally downstream from human beings. And I think that's like a good point, like um, the very law of entropy, that, that things tend towards destruction and disorder. That doesn't seem like the sort of law that we would imagine to observe within a sort of ideal state of the world. It seems like in an ideal state of the world, there would be a sort of law of maximization where things just tend much more towards like good things or at least sustaining of the good things. And so uh, yeah, it seems like God sort of like put us into a world in which we have, we're almost like given a bad deck right off the bat where like, uh, here you go, deal with that. And I think that, I don't know, there's a, been a couple of ways I've been trying to respond to this in uh, my different papers. And the one I'm like mostly satisfied by, but it could be that there's maybe, I don't know, this isn't a very satisfying response, is this idea that um, God would be, in, God would be interested in basically deifying, I guess, human beings so that they could share in uh, God's nature and be able to act uh, or have the same capacities and powers that God would have. Hmm. Uh, so theosis, this, you say. Yeah, yeah, theosis. Very, so. very literal understanding of theosis, I might add. Well, yeah, so within the Eastern Orthodox faith and uh, Catholicism, although it's not heavily emphasized, and also, yes, within Mormonism, there's this <laughs> idea of theosis where... Uh, in union with Christ that we get to partake of the divine nature of Christ because like God, Christ was the God man so he had both a human nature and a divine nature and so for those human beings that are brought into Christ's uh, sort of body I guess are upon death going to basically be absorbed or partake within that sort of divine nature and so from that it seems like there's going to be the divine powers that could be granted alongside that. So at least within Catholic tradition, what is sort of like almost like a prerequisite or a criteria in order to recognize somebody as a saint is the fact that there's some sort of miracle attributed to that individual. Like somebody prayed for healing and then lo and behold, they were healed. And so, well, it was because I prayed, I prayed to Saint, uh, to Mary, um, Mother Teresa or somebody like that, that is what led to the Catholic church recognizing, okay, this was a bona fide miracle that took place. And so, we're going to recognize that, yeah, it must be the case that Mother Teresa was beatified. I, I'm realizing now that's like a horrible example to bring in for you, given your sort of background with Mother Teresa. I'm um, resisting the urge to... Let's say St. Francis. I was mentally replacing Mother Teresa with a good person, but yeah, I understand the point. <laughs> yeah, I, I like St. Francis quite a bit, actually. He was a fellow lover of animals uh, in, in the good way. Um and so, um, yeah, there's this idea that, like, when the those that die in a friendship with God are uh, dead, they will be even more alive, and they will partake in the divine life of God. And so from that, they're also going to have certain powers that God has. And maybe it's the case that um, the sorts of things that we would see from our perspective to not be feasible for us to be, have any effect on, like the laws of nature or things like that, are going to be things that creatures could actually causally contribute towards after they've undergone sort of theosis. And I think that there's going to be the question like, okay, well, why didn't God just create these semi-divine beings right off the bat? And it seems to me, at least if God were to do that when these beings were not in a perfectly moral state, then that's just going to emphasize the problem of evil so much more, at least in regards to like the problem of 
free will theodicies and stuff like that where like oh this being has the power to annihilate the universe through a snap of his fingers or something like that that's not the type of being that we should create if they are not perfectly morally inclined and so maybe if we can sort of like build up this sort of perfect moral inclination through their causal contributions and then after that once they've sort of died in a friendship with god their their moral inclinations can be perfectly beatified and so they have now the the power to causally contribute with God towards the affecting of these things that are much that go way beyond the powers of mere mortals. Now I know that's going to be like an additional sort of like supposition to add to um, the theodicy, and so that's why I'm like it's not exactly. So I don't know. It just seems like that's going to be maybe like an additional way in which the defender of the participation theodicy could like respond to that particular objection. Okay. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, of course, I have to bring up that, you know, that kind of pretty literal understanding of theosis, you know, it exists within one particular part of the Christian tradition. Um, but anyway, um, so there's another objection I wanted to bring up, which is just that our participation is like kind of dubious, like our contribution, right. you know, it's, it's kind of like shallow. Um, so, you know, if I give the example of like building a house you know, and then I help, or I let my young child, like, kind of, like, I kind of halfway hammer in a nail, and then I let him kind of do the last couple swings, and, like, you know, like, I would excitedly praise, you know, him for all of his help in, like, building the house, but, like, are we seriously going to give him credit for, like, participating in building the house? And it's like, God already did so much of this fundamental work that we just had nothing to do with, and we just kind of, like, hammer in the nail the last half of the way for like one little thing and we're like wow you know i, I guess that justifies all this evil you know because we quote unquote participated you know mm -hmm. and really it's like god is doing like all the heavy lifting right no that's actually yeah, a good point that like if the participation that was taking place by creatures was really insignificant right like there's only like minor things that were sort of changed and then god sort of like predominantly sort of course directed the entirety of the history of the world towards this particular ideal end that he has in mind then it would be hard to really say that all the evil was justified because like most of the work is being done by god on that side and so i uh, i guess just sort of thinking about that analogy I, i'd want to say it's not perfectly in line with like the intuitions behind the the participation theodicy, because in that analogy, you have God doing most of the work, and then at the very end, some creatures would, uh, like, adding some small contribution and then being praised, oh, good for you, look what you helped build this house. But at least in the way that I think about uh, both the theodicy and also our actual world is creatures sort of from the beginning have been contributing towards the way things will go in the future. So if we were to sort of, like, almost change the analogy you were bringing up earlier of, like, well, let's say that the the father is like deciding to build a house and then he was like okay what do you want for your room and he was like actually talking to his two-year-old daughter and they like they don't have very good ideas about like how to design a house or anything like that but they can still say like oh i want it to have princesses and unicorns and a big slide or something like that that's a sense in which they actually are contributing even if it is on a sort of minuscule scale because they're not actually contributing towards the actual material process of like building that house or anything like that but it is still something that like yeah if the creatures are actually contributing in the very blueprint process then that's going to be a significant amount of creaturely contribution even from creatures who are uh very minuscule in, in regards to the the broad scope of things their small decisions and actions will have significant effects that will 
change the, 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 the direction of uh, the future history uh, through their, their minor actions. And yeah, there is going to be a, this sense in which their minor uh, contributions will have significant effects down the line. Yeah. And, and I mean, part of the theodicy is like, you know, you're actually trying to explain evil and it's like evil's not just there for us to eliminate it. It's also like the byproduct of us av having like sort of gen like genuine autonomy. Right. Um, Cause we're not just like kind of being placed in front of a nail, like on your view. I mean, we're not being like placed in front of a halfway hammered in nail. Like we actually do have some autonomy and that's part of why suffering exists in the first place is because you know, the, the training wheels really are off, you know, like we really do have some control over how the world is and that's part of why it sucks, you know. Um, it's not just there like for us to eliminate it, it's also there because, you know, we do have some genuine autonomy in like how we participate and it's not always, you know, ideal. But um, yeah, there, there still is all this foundational stuff though that we just have nothing to do with that like... Um, it, I don't want to say it like makes our participation meaningless. That would be going like too far, but it does, you know, it, you just have to question, like, I guess there's another way of coming at this. That's like different enough that, um, counter apologist brought up. He wanted me to mention this one objection to you about how, well, God created us, you know? So like our participation is really in a sense, just him, you know, like kind of, it's like his participation, you know, because he created our natures and like he created us and then, yeah, we're participating, but he's the one who created us. It kind of pushes the problem just one step back where, um, you know, our contribution is kind of shallow in this sense where God is doing a lot of really foundational stuff that we have no control over and no knowledge of, like no understanding of, including like the creation of us, you know? So it's like, our participation, it just sort of, it still is on God, you know, it's just slightly right. more indirect and removed. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I can kind of see that, like, if it's the case that all creaturely contri uh, contribution or causation towards the ideal world is actually directly brought about only by God, <laughs> like, the only reason that you or I can actually contribute towards the world is because God created both of us. Uh, then it, and like created us with our characters and dispositions and uh, inclinations and things like that. Then we can say that, oh, all the things that we do are not actually attributable to us. Rather, they're only going to be attributable to God. And so if there's some bad things that can occur within the world, then that's the fact that that bad thing can occur is going to be attributable to God. And so it's not going it's going to sort of rule out God's uh, perfect divine goodness. Yeah, I guess. Um, the way that I responded to a, a similar objection in, in my paper was almost like taking the Molinist uh, or almost like objecting to the Molinist route where the Molinist idea of the world is like God sort of like sees all the different ways in which the world could go and then decides, okay, this one is going to be most in line with my uh, intentions. And so I'm going to actualize this state of affairs. And that's going to include some like evils that can take place given uh, I don't know, the free will defense, the fact that counterfactuals of creaturely freedom can will always somehow include some uh, instances of evil. But it seems like on that sort of picture of the world where God sort of like decides which way the world goes and sort of like creates the initial conditions that sort of set everything else in motion off of that using his uh, foreknowledge as to how creatures will act. It seems like that sort of like decision as to what, what, what way the world could go 
is the sort of thing that God could have allowed creatures could, to contribute towards. Like, um, if it's good that God decides amongst a variety of options as to what way the world should go, and that's like some sort of good, it seems like it should similarly be the case that it would be good for creatures to be able to decide amongst a variety of, of options as to what way the world should go. And so if one way of God's uh, bringing about of creation would preclude that other way, then it seems like that would be a less good way for God to act than the other way. And so maybe it is the case that using this sort of reasoning from the participation theodicy, uh, we can sort of arrive at the idea that, well, it would be better for God to create a world in which it does have this sort of open future plan where the decisions of creatures are going to be fully attributable to themselves and not to the dispositions that they were uh, initially uh, given. And that's going to be the fully uh, the full thing that describes them. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. There's a sense in which this almost seems like it's arguing that like, oh, libertarian free will is necessary for this theodicy to go through. But I don't know, the way that I hear counter-apologists sort of like describing free will, it seems like it should go up against even how compatibilists will argue. Like, compatibilists will want to argue that, no, even if it were the case that you were born into a situation in which your genes basically determined what way you were going to act, your actions are still going to be fully attributable to you. It's not the case that you're, you can sort of pawn off your decision to the, the exactly prior causal thing that brought you about. Rather, no, you are uh, uh, fully, fully, what's the term? Fully responsible for your actions. And now I, I do think that counter-apologist is sort of a, a incompatibilist, but in regards to sort of a hard determinist stance. Now I might be not, yeah, we can discuss this further uh, with him on Twitter if he takes issue with my sort of articulation of him. But it does seem like in order for creatures to actually be causal, uh, to, to be responsible for the, the actions that they take, it might have to include this non-indeterministic uh, consideration, like either in a compatibilist sense or in a libertarian sense. I don't think that either one is really necessary. Probably both of them could be compatible with this particular theodicy. I mean, I, yeah, I kind of thought that this was going to come down to like different views about free will. Like when I was looking at his objection about how like, um, it seems like his objection does kind of like, I don't want to say it like presupposes determinism and incompatibilism and all that, but, um, I don't know. It did kind of strike me that way where once you take on that mindset that like incompatibilist, like hard determinist mindset, it's like his objection makes perfect sense where it's like, oh, you know, it's your participation, quote unquote, but like God created you and, you know, you have no free will and determinism is true. So like God is basically just creating these dolls that he's playing with. And then it's like, right. oh, good job. It's like, yeah, I can see how from like counter apologists, like worldview, like, yeah, that's a, that's a good objection. But if you have a different view about free will, then it kind of, it just doesn't seem to have the same force. You don't even have to be a libertarian because I think that, you know, some libertarians might be inclined to think like, oh, you know, this objection just presupposes that libertarianism is false, and then once I accept libertarian free will, then it's like, I I am the sole locus of, like, right. every single thing about me, and, like, I am ultimately responsible for the way that I am, or something like that, and, you know, you don't have to believe that kind of nonsense to be a libertarian, <laughs> like, right. you can just, um, you can accept that there's, like, some kind of indeterministic causation or something, and also recognize that, 
like, yeah, God probably has some kind of understanding about what you're inclined to do and like what you're likely to do. And um, yeah, I don't think that to be a like defender of libertarian free will, you have to just like reject everything that suggests that your behavior is uh, kind of predictable. <laughs> and like, it's, uh, yeah, like, but I think that, you know, and this is where, um, you know, I think compatibilism can actually be helpful. Like, if you actually do, uh, you know, take compatibilism seriously, then that might be of use to someone who wants to defend the participation theodicy, where, you know, I don't think that you can just wave like a kind of libertarian free will magic wand where it's like, well, look, humans have libertarian free will, so they're these totally autonomous agents and their participation is meaningful because God basically has nothing to do with their nature. It's like, well, that's not defensible. God obviously designed human beings, like, if you believe in, like, traditional theism or whatever, like, God had some kind of hand in, like, making human beings and designing them, so, and he could have designed them differently. Anyway, I don't think libertarianism is, like, sufficient to be like, oh, we're totally autonomous moral agents and God basically can totally wash his hands of, like, everything that we do. Um, no, like, I, I think that that would be, like, disingenuous, you know, to think that, um, God had like he just had no idea like what was even likely for human beings to right. do like um no he had to <laughs> like regardless of your views about like divine foreknowledge and open theism and free will like right, right. it is just not plausible to say that like God has no clue like uh you know what is like it, is that like one scenario is more likely than another it's all just equally probable um from his perspective because libertarian free will like sorry that just doesn't make sense so i think you do need something like compatibilism where it's like no those are still your decisions and like you're responsible for them like you can kind of own them in a very robust sense you know and by the way this is this works with like uh like determinism and also with libertarianism like you could believe in libertarian free will and think hey compatibilists are onto something where like, hey, just because you're more inclined to take this sort of action because of your genes or your environment, you can still really own those actions and be like, no, this came from me. Like, this is like a free choice on my part. And like compatibilists can actually give some color to what free choice, uh, you know, and like kind of ownership and control over your actions and behavior, like what that could look like without, I don't know, going any like really, really implausible route. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's actually helpful. It's like, it seemed like from counter-apologist sort of objection and elsewhere in the thread that we were sort of discussing it, it seemed like he was almost like denying the premise that like it would be good for creatures to contribute towards bringing about an ideal world. And it seems like, yeah, if you were to sort of accept this view that like under theism, God is the ultimate cause of all things that could occur on the after that it seems like yeah maybe that's going to sort of rule out the goodness of like creaturely contribution but like if you're at all inclined to recognize that yeah in order for creatures to causally contribute towards bringing about some ideal state of the world that would be something good uh and so if some if there's this I, th I think I think he would actually reject that like based on the conversation I had with him and Ryan from Relay Theology about hell I think he actually would just be like, yeah, God should have just created us ex nihilo in like this ideal state. Like that would be better. Like, I don't care about causal history. Like I think he might just go that route. Right. Um, and, uh, he, and yeah, he, he is like an incompatibilist as far as I know. And just to sum up everything I was trying to say earlier, mm -hmm. like compatibilism, I think can help make our participation right. meaningful. That's really what I was trying to get at. Yeah. Yeah. Especially cause like when you look at the vast history of the world, 
it's gonna be hard it's gonna be implausible to think that all those instances of creaturely contribution were through this specifically uh libertarian understanding of decision making that could have taken place a lot of the yeah. decisions that were taking place were very likely going to be uh determined determined by the creature's nature or at least a significant number of them but if it's a case that a creature can be responsible for their action even though they were determined to make that decision based upon their character or the past history of the world uh but nonetheless it is still properly attributable to them and it would the, the very thing that they were doing was a good thing then yeah this the odyssey can still go through and so yeah no that's another that's an additional point i hadn't thought of is like a lot of incompatibilists on on both on both sides will kind of not only challenge like your responsibility and your ownership and your control like of your actions and your behavior they'll also say that like they'll make this further claim about even judging things as good or bad like right. oh well it was determined so you can't really say it was good or bad but right. yeah i think compatibilism you know, now that I'm thinking of it, compatibilism. This is such a this is such a great irony because you fucking hate compatibilism. But um, that, like, I I honestly am like I'll have to think more about this. But I think compatibilism might actually be like necessary for your theodicy to work because you need to be able to say that participation is good even when it was like determined, right. and that participation is meaningful even when it's not like purely the result of like a totally autonomous like libertarianly free choice or something. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Well, it's funny. I, in thinking about the theodicy, while I myself am a libertarian and do almost take a sort of panangential libertarian understanding of the cosmos, similar to, I think, uh, Philip Goff is at least sympathetic towards, I've been thinking about the theodicy and it's like, you know what? Libertarianism isn't really necessary for the theodicy to go through. A lot of it is like just basic assumptions about like, okay, this would be good and this wouldn't be good and things like that. But yeah, I, I get what you're kind of saying that like, for the libertarian who thinks that an action can only be considered good or bad if that action was libertarianly free, uh, and there are a lot of libertarians that do defend that sort of position, then yeah, probably given the fact that our causal history of the world includes a lot of determined events uh, that led to some good things, but uh, they would have to say, no, that wasn't actually a good thing. And so that's going to be like an open spot. But it is kind of funny too, thinking about like both compatible, both of the incompatibilists are almost like for um, uh, counter apologists who, who's saying that like, oh no, because this thing was determined, it cannot be considered good and attributable to the agent that performed that action. And similarly, the libertarian, he'll say that, oh, because this action was determined, it cannot be considered good or evil because it was not attributable to the individual. Yeah, yeah, counter-apologist is trying to say like, well, it's all attributable to God, you know? Right. Um, and then I think the libertarian would have like a slightly different objection, like, but it's still the same flavor of thing right. because they're saying like, no, the participation is like not meaningful participation right. unless it's like the product of like a libertarian free choice or something but yeah i think if you want the participation theodicy to like extend as far as you want it to mm -hmm. um to creatures that are not consciously thinking you know like if, if you want participation to be meaningful for uh you know especially for like non-human animals or something right. then yeah it seems like you're gonna have to go a compatibilist route um for that participation to actually like mean anything yeah yeah uh regardless I, I mean regardless uh, whether of whether animals have libertarian free will or not on your view like um i mean i don't There's see why they wouldn't decisions that they make that must have been determined or are very yeah. likely to have been determined by their nature 
So, and regardless, they're not moral agents, you know, by and right. large. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point, too. Do you want to uh, move on to Draper's argument? Sure. Yeah. Okay, this is kind of the last, like... Um, major objection I wanted to bring up because, you know, this is a theodicy, like it's supposed to answer arguments from evil. So Draper's argument from the biological rules of pain and pleasure, he published this famous paper in 1989. It's just one of those arguments where it seems like, I, like, I don't even know what a good response, like even would look like. It just kind of seems like an, like an unambiguous win, I think, for uh, like naturalism. So we can kind of go through the argument and then mm -hmm we can see how the participation theodicy might interact with it. Um, but the argument is basically that, you know, natural selection is an amoral force, you know? So like th there are these uh, biological, um, you know, roles that pain and pleasure fulfill. Um, so it's clear that pain and pleasure are correlated with adaptation and byproducts of adaptation. But to concede that point is to concede that the distribution of pain and pleasure in the biological world is, you know, not really organized according to moral principles because right. natural selection obviously plays like a determinative role and natural selection is an amoral force so that means the distribution of pain and pleasure is kind of amoral um so yeah it, morally random but a good god wouldn't create a morally random world um if he's good he wouldn't create or allow suffering without some justifying reason so I mean, to me, that seems strong enough. It's like, oh yeah, the distribution of pain and pleasure in the world is more in line with the expectations of like a hypothesis of indifference as opposed to, you know, perfect being theism or something like that. So at this point, though, you know, theists will argue sometimes that there are actually morally justifying reasons like for the distribution of pain and pleasure that we see. And um, maybe we can't always discern them. But, you know, the strength of this argument is in part that you can just grant that you can be like okay fine there are moral reasons you know for all the pain and pleasure that we see in the biological world there are morally justifying reasons behind you know all that suffering that we see in predation or something um or with like fawns burning in the forest you know even though it serves no um no moral purpose so at least apparently so we can suppose that those reasons exist but then we would have to believe that god's moral reasons uh, regarding the distribution of pain and pleasure just happen to line up with the predictions of evolutionary biology. Like, oh, coincidentally, um, God's moral reasoning just happens to line up with, you know, the, the with adaptations and byproducts of adaptations. Hmm. So, yeah, that's logically possible, but it's like a massive coincidence. Um, and to quote Jeff Lauder, it's a big coincidence that naturalists don't need. So, I think that, you know, this is a really great argument because it identifies this set of observations and it says like, hey, these observations are more likely on naturalism, like on a hypothesis of indifference, than on theism. And to me, that just seems like unambiguously correct. And it's not really defeated by being like, oh, well, maybe there are moral reasons behind the distribution of pain and pleasure we see. Like, yeah, that's already accounted for in the argument. Um, so that's like, a it's a really strong argument from evil so you know i'm not exactly giving you like a, a middle tier one <laughs> like, so this is like a you know a top shelf argument from evil so um how would the participation theodicy interact with with draper's argument there yeah no it's yeah it's a great argument and i think that at least the way that i might use the participation theodicy to uh come into discussion with it is to sort of like think about 
um, that point that's being made that if God were to create a world, the pains and pleasures would be, let's say, morally correlated to where uh, an action that is good would be correlated with some sort of positive experience and an action that was bad would be morally correlated with some like negative experience. But that's not the case in our world. Rather, pains and pleasures are biologically correlated. Um, and so the, that fact sort of goes against our uh, idea about like, well, this probably isn't the type of world that God would create. And now I, I think then the step is going to be, okay, we'll recognize that in an ideal world that God might create ex nihilo uh, or, or whatever. It is, that's going to be a world in which, yeah, pains and pleasures are going to be morally correlated. Um, but in a non-ideal world, that's not going to be the case. So that's going to be an instance where in, in a non-ideal world, pains and pleasures are not going to be perfectly correlated with the moral behaviors that gave rise to them. And so that's at least going to open up at least the opportunity for there to be these non-moral correlations between pains and pleasures. And then the other point, too, is that if God is inclined towards allowing creatures to participate in the bringing about of an ideal world, it would seem then that God would have to sort of like provide these creatures with the these sorts of natures that allow them to contribute towards the bringing about of an ideal world. And it's through their experiences that they can contribute towards that ideal world. So like what I was sort of saying uh, maybe earlier is that um, when a creature reproduces, there's some sort of like moral impetus or not moral impetus, but a sort of like phenomenal impetus to that creature to reproduce. And in reproducing, it's actually bringing about uh, some other good besides itself. And so there's a sense in which that creature is contributing towards the idealization of the world by bringing about some greater good. Um, and so it seems like the very fact that, yeah, they have a sort of biological drive towards reproduction. Um, that's going to be something that isn't necessarily going to be surprising under theism, but rather if God is inclined towards bringing about uh, or allowing creatures to participate in the bringing about of an ideal world, it would seem like that would be the sort of thing that almost be like required. Like if it were the case that God created a world in which like there's no correlation between the phenomenal experiences of creatures and then they're bringing about of an ideal world, then that doesn't make any sense as to like what that type of participation uh, actually um, from the creature side. But rather, God would have to create those creatures that are inclined towards acting in ways that will contribute towards the eventual bringing about of this ideal world. And then last point, I'm not so sure that it's just a straightforward inference that we can make that given naturalism and um, evolution, that thereby we're going to have a perfect correlation between pains and pleasures, because it seems to me that epiphenomenalism is like a theory of mind that is perfectly consistent with both naturalism and evolution. Like, uh, what is it, T.H. Huxley, great friend of Darwin, was actually like an epiphenomenalist. And there was a period uh, within that period of time where epiphenomenalism was kind of like the go-to philosophy of mind position. <laughs> but epiphenomenalism is a position that pains and pleasures, all mental activities are going to be non-causal in regards to physical behaviors. But when we talk about natural selection, that's going to be purely descriptive of physical behaviors. The reason that you have these traits is due to the physical behaviors that your ancestors uh, were either to able to uh, genetically lead to your uh, progeneration through reproduction or, or they died off. And so that's going to be how we have the traits that we do through evolution is through the physical behaviors of uh, our ancestors. 
So I don't know. It, it, I'm I'm at least not seeing that straightforward inference from naturalism and uh, from naturalism and evolution that we're going to have a perfect correlation between biological roles of pains and pleasures. Seems very much to me that like theoretically you can have pains that were perfectly correlated with adaptive behaviors, but just so long as those pains had led to no actual physical contribution in, or had no causal impact on your actual physical behaviors, then yeah, it could very well be the case that every time creatures reproduced, they were in physical agony the whole time, but they couldn't do anything about it because that was just a sort of epiphenomenal smoke that was sort of effervescently sort of expressed by that, those behaviors, but it's not some sort of pain that could like allow them to change their behaviors in any way. And so, I don't know, it seems like maybe in order for that argument to go through, we're going to have to also assume that epiphenomenalism is false, but it's, so it's not going to be a straightforward uh, argument, at, at least as much as like maybe people like Paul Draper will be putting forward. It, it sounds like you were veering into like psychophysical harmony territory there at the end. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do think that that's probably uh, an interesting um, argument for God that can interact quite well with Paul Draper's argument, because it does seem like Paul, Draper argue, Paul Draper's argument in order to go through must sort of assume that there is a sort of like positive correlation between behaviors which are good for the organism and their uh, continual species and phenomenal states of pleasure that, uh, with that, that behavior. And it seems to me that under a sort of like indifferent um, cosmos that is sort of like uninterested in bringing about good states of affairs that it's going to be kind of surprising <laughs> that that sort of correlation could pop up because we could think of a, a number of other types of correlations that are just not going to have that sort of psychophysical harmony there. Yeah, I mean, so arguably Draper is um, just assuming that there's like some degree of psychophysical harmony, like there's some degree of like a rationally appropriate match between mm -hmm. physical behavior and internal phenomenal states. And you don't actually have to have to talk about epiphenomenalism, um, even though it might be useful at first, but like you can sort of go through the progression of like the argument from psychophysical harmony where you say like, okay, it might be useful to talk about epiphenomenalism first, but actually you don't like get out of this problem by rejecting epiphenomenalism. So it really doesn't matter in the end. But um, so yeah, I think that Draper does kind of assume that there's some level of psychophysical harmony, like appropriate matching between physical and phenomenal states. He also assumes that, you know, things exist. You know, he makes other kinds of assumptions like this. So, you know, I don't, I really don't like this type of argument. And it's like a pretty common tactic for, for theists, I've noticed, where you, you know, you point to something that seems to be evidence against theism. And they say, well, in order for this thing to even exist, there has to be this other more foundational thing, which is actually evidence for theism. So this like higher level thing actually does not evidence, is not evidence against theism. So, um, a, fr a friend of ours, our mutual friend, Jonathan Staker, has a blog post about this that I, I remember from a while back, where he said something like, oh, Joe Biden's blue tie is evidence for theism, um, you know, where he's just like, well, you know, uh, Joe Biden's tie, you know, is is blue. And the thing is, like, the existence of this blue tie, it, you know, is designed by, like, a conscious human agent. And conscious human agents can only exist because of a sort of fine-tuning. And fine-tuning is evidence for theism. So Joe Biden's blue tie is evidence for theism. And he's like, okay, surely something has gone wrong if you think that like Joe Biden's blue tie is evidence for theism. But it seems like this sort of move is, uh, is made sometimes where you're trying to point to something that appears to be evidence against theism, and then rather than actually engage with that, 
see us sort of go more fundamental. And they're like, well, in order for that to even exist, there has to be fine tuning, um, you know, or there has to be existence. And, you know, atheists can't explain why there's something rather than nothing. So, like, actually, if you think about it, everything is evidence for theism. <laughs> it's like, okay, maybe something has gone wrong if you think that basically everything is evidence for theism. Um, so I sort of feel like that where it's like Draper is pointing out an observation that's like clearly more expected on indifference than on theism. And it's like, well, he's presuming psychophysical harmony. It's like, well, yes, I think that that's true. Like, I think he's assuming there's some degree of psychophysical harmony when he's talking about this, but um, it's okay to make certain assumptions when you're like, uh, you know, making arguments and honing in on certain data points. Even if you want to grant that, like, in order for conscious agents to exist, you know, something like human beings to exist, oh, that requires fine-tuning, and fine-tuning is good evidence for theism. Like, even if you think that, surely there are some states that these conscious beings could find themselves in that would be evidence against theism. Like, if there were just, you know, trillions and trillions of intelligent conscious agents that were just in utter agony, you know, and like it was just like this for trillions upon trillions of years, um, you know, I don't think that would be evidence for theism. Like, I think that we could, um, you know, infer that theism is probably not true if that's the situation that we that we found ourselves in. Um, and then the apologists in that situation would be like, well, think about this. Every single moment of torture that we're experiencing is a contingent event. And any <laughs> contingent event is going to require some sort of non-contingent cause. <laughs> it's Yeah, the explanation is either in itself or outside itself. Um, yeah, like, as we're both on fire, they're like, yeah. maybe like the contingency argument. Yeah, it's like, okay, surely there is something that could be happening to conscious agents, you know, <laughs> like if we were all in, um, you know, a state of eternal conscious torment, basically, and that was just all there ever was. Um, theism would not be a very rational, you know, thing to believe in that sort of world. And um, even if it's the case that, you know, conscious agents, you know, require fine tuning, which is evidence for theism, okay, still doesn't change the fact that this like kind of higher level thing is definitely evidence against theism that might completely overwhelm that more fundamental stuff. Right. Um, so yeah, it, it's not that you're wrong exactly that like, yeah, psychophysical harmony is a necessary component for any of this to even work in the first place in the same way that like, yeah, stuff has to exist, you know, in order for any of this to work. But, um, I do sort of view that as just like changing the subject and there, I think it might've also been John Staker who, criticized that way of putting it when I, um, someone put this to me in the context of like the problem of evil. And, and I was like, you know, you're just, you're just changing the subject. Like when you bring up like, oh, well, in order for evil to exist, there has to be consciousness there. There has to be like fine tuning and all that's evidence for theism. And, um, yeah, it is kind of an interesting topic because it, it comes up a lot, I think. And it's not necessarily like disingenuous or whatever. Like, I think it's like a reasonable question to be like, well, hang on, you're saying this one observation is evidence against theism, but in order for this observation to occur, there has to be this other thing, which I think is, you know, it presupposes this other thing, which I think is evidence for theism. Um, so does that matter? It's like, yeah, that's a re totally reasonable thought, but um, I think that it can be kind of shown that it actually doesn't matter. And like, I think the example of of waking up in a situation with like the worst possible misery for everyone and it's like, yeah, who cares about fine-tuning or contingency arguments when everyone's in this, like, horrible, horrible state? We're all on fire! <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, I think that, like, is a good way of, like, intuitively illustrating why that doesn't work. But, um, you know, like, I remember Joe Schmid uh, commenting somewhere, and he explained it in a way that it made perfect sense to me. I tried to pass it on to other people, and, like, they, um, they didn't find it as, like, 
straightforwardly obvious as I, I thought. But um, anyway, the point is, I think it can be shown like technically that that, that sort of reasoning is, is no good. But yeah, right. we also have this very intuitive like thought experiment that I think illustrates it as well. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying, though. That, that, yeah, uh, just moving one step back and like, well, what are the prerequisite conditions in order for biological roles of pains and pleasure to take place? And then that's going to be like, yeah, maybe that's the case, but that's going to be moving aside from what this actual evidential data point is. And so, yeah, trying to hone in then on what is the evidential data point that Paul Draper is sort of presenting as going to be evidence favoring naturalism over that of theism. And it seems like the evidential data point is going to be, well, pain is highly correlated with adaptive behaviors. And no, <laughs> other way around, <laughs> pleasure is highly <laughs> correlated with adaptive behaviors. Uh, and pain is highly correlated with maladaptive behaviors. And it seems like this is going to be best explained by some sort of amoral uh, natural process rather than some sort of like intelligent being sort of like imbuing this into existence. And I think that it could be an intelligent being. It just it would have to be an in morally kind of indifferent intelligent right. being. Yeah, yeah, but that's true. So like a deism could also exist. Could be, yeah. No, in the in the original paper, he brings up like the indifferent deity hypothesis, where he's like, you know, this is technically a hypothesis of indifference, and you know, right. but um, yeah, it's like natural selection is a really good predictor for you know when we experience pain and pleasure. Um, mm -hmm. So, like, you know, you could give the example of, like, rape, where that's morally wrong. You know, rape is morally wrong, but evolutionarily speaking, it's, like, a strategy for propagating your genes, and, like, that's mm -hmm. probably why it exists. It's probably why it's incentivized, uh, for, for some people at least. Um, yeah, but, like, so that's, you know, that's one example you could give where it's, like, this is clearly immoral, but some people are, like, incentivized to do it, and it's perfectly explicable through an evolutionary lens. Right. Um, whereas, like, if... The designer of the biological realm was natural selection plus God, as opposed to just natural selection. Then maybe you wouldn't expect, like you know, very immoral behavior like that to be like incentivized. Right. Um, right. But you can also give less inflammatory examples with like, uh, you know, uh, someone dying in a uh, in a fire where they're the the pain that they're feeling is like not really advantageous, <laughs> like because they're gonna die. But um, natural selection has no way of sort of fine-tuning our experiences of the world such that like when it's actually not going to be helpful to your survival and reproduction then it can just turn off you don't need to burn alive you know like whereas if it was natural selection plus god or something like that then there could be all these you know all these additional mechanisms that were kind of sensitive to those different scenarios but there's no way natural selection could um be sensitive to like these different circumstances where it's like, well, like there's no, the fawn is burning in the forest. Like it doesn't need to suffer those extra, you know, 15 minutes or something like that. Like, what's the point of that? You know what I mean? Like natural selection can't do anything about that. Whereas natural selection plus God actually could do something about that. So yeah, it's like natural selection is amoral. We've have, we have this distribution of pain and pleasure. That's easily explicable. If you think that natural selection, this amoral force, you know, this indifferent force is kind of what's creating this distribution of pain and pleasure. Yeah. So I think then, uh, uh, I don't know at how the person defending the participation theodicy should respond, namely me, I guess, is to say that, yeah, uh, if we were to just think about what sort of world God would create, just thinking about that without also taking into consideration God's interest in Bringing about uh, allowing creatures to participate and bring about that world. It seems like, yeah, we could say that in an ideal world, uh, there wouldn't be um, pains 
that did not contribute it in some way to the good of that creature. Um, so like in regards to the normal survival in, in uh, various environments, it's a good thing that you're in pain on some occasions. Like the very fact that you're in pain when it's cold out tells you, oh, I need to go inside so as to avoid uh, like dying. So that's a good fact about pain. But um, yeah, it seems like in an ideal world, for one, that sort of condition probably won't take place where people could theoretically die. Um, also, the, the idea that, um, yeah, these sorts of pains wouldn't occur when it doesn't actually contribute towards your own well-being. Uh, but given that, like, in order for creatures to causally contribute towards that ideal world, they would have to first exist within a non-ideal world in which that, that good just is not going to be the case. And so, yeah, uh, if we also take into consideration God's allowance of creatures to participate in the faculties of other creatures, then that's going to account for why it is the case that we have these sorts of non-ideal um, correlations between biological rules and, of pain and pleasures, where you can have uh, individuals that are incentivized uh, to ra commit rape. And you also have instances of creatures that are experiencing terrible agony, even in situations in which it's not ultimately for their uh, adaptive uh, or for, towards their well-being. Um, so yeah, uh, that's going to be the, the sort of general response, I guess. I mean, I guess I can kind of see that with the moral examples with like, you know, human, um, you know, immorality where it's like, well, look, we, we, we've already talked about like moral progress and like moral improvement. And it's like, okay, so yeah, I think the participation of the Odyssey can say something about some of those cases, but in order to make Draper's argument, you never have to talk about moral agents. You know, you can just talk about right. non-human animals and for that, it's like when I try to concretely imagine, you know, applying this theodicy to like, you know, the fawn in the forest, it's like, so we're going to causally contribute to adding these mechanisms that are sensitive to like, you know, when the suffering would be gratuitous. Like, again, like, we can't do that. Like, I don't even know what that would look like. You know, like, it just seems like it falls back into that first sort of objection of like, we can't causally contribute to bettering the world in this way. This is something that's just inextricably built into the biological order and like if something if something ever does something about this it's not going to be human beings and like i said i don't really know who other than god could have done what we're talking about here it doesn't well, seem like we can like participate at all in eliminating those sorts of evils well at least in regards to like human relationships and interactions, it does seem like we have managed to provide at least one solution to the problems of pain in instances which it doesn't actually contribute towards our own well-being. And that's going to be painkillers and other anesthetics to where somebody is in pain, it's not contributing towards their well-being in any way, and then we give them anesthetics and that actually helps them so that they're not experiencing that sort of pain. And so theoretically, uh, if you're you have an animal that you love very much and that animal is in pain then you could give them a re you could give them some sort of anesthetic or painkiller so that they're not going to experience that sort of pain and so like if we had some sort of relationship similar to that to all the animals in the world then that would be i know it's, it's going to be significantly different from the very world that we currently inhabit but it is at least a theoretically possible world and even if it's not us in per se but rather some like future advanced more moral version of ourselves um that is more uh disposed towards appreciating and considering the the well-being of animals besides themselves then yeah that could be a way in which um they could be able to have that sort of ideal scenario where pains are perfectly correlated with what's good for the creature. Yeah. 
No, it just struck me as you were saying that, like, we're talking about, like, altering the laws of nature so that, like, little fawns suffer slightly less. And it's like, we can't even get people to stop, like, factory farming animals. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah maybe, like, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, we're not, um, we're not anywhere near what we're, what we're talking about here. But, um, man, factory farming. See, that's one of those examples where it's like, was it really worth it? Like, the, the evil of factory farming, like, Oh well, someday we'll eliminate this thing that we created. <laughs> like, oh, cool. <laughs> like, I kind of right. wish it just never existed. Um, I'm no, not really, yeah. That's actually a good point that I want to bring up. That I wish I sort of brought up sooner because there's this sort of idea that can easily be had where when I talk about like, oh, the ideal world, that's just going to be like, oh, this and eliminating all these evil things, and then that's going to be what makes it a world ideal. But I don't think that's really like. What I have in mind in regards to the participation theodicy, I think God would be more inclined towards not just the fact that creatures contribute towards eradicating some evil thing, but rather God is inclined towards allowing creatures to participate in the bringing about of some great thing. And so, like, if it were the case that God, like, created us in a world where babies were constantly drowning in puddles all around us and like okay here you go kid <laughs> like and then it seemed like yeah probably the good thing that we should do is to probably like save all those babies but it seems like that would be a horrible thing for like god to put us in that sort of situation and i want to say that no it's not the case that god puts us into situations that are already bad so that we can make them less bad rather god puts us into a situation in which a lot of bad things can occur as like a consequence of the laws of nature and the possibilities that are out there so that these creatures could contribute towards bringing about a very great world in which that sort of those sorts of possibilities are no longer going to be the case. Um, so I don't know, in my paper, I sort of elaborate a little bit better, but talking about what's an intrinsic good versus what's an extrinsic good. So I'd want to say that saving a child from drowning, that's going to be an extrinsic good because you're preventing some bad thing from occurring. And so the fact that you're preventing some bad thing is itself going to be good in a sense, but it's not going to be good in and of itself. It's going to be good in relation to the bad that you prevented. Um, but when we talk about an intrinsic good, like the good of I don't know, hugging your wife or uh, doing something that's pleasurable, that's going to be something intrinsically good. It's worth doing for its own sake. And so similar to that, I want to say that the creation of an ideal world is going to be an intrinsic good, but in order for creatures to... Um, contribute towards that, they would have to exist in a world in which a lot of intrinsic bads could occur. Um, yeah, so it's, it's just not the case that in order for creatures to contribute towards an ideal world, that cancer must admit, uh, must initially exist so that cancer could be eradicated. For all we, for uh, all my theodicy says, it doesn't say that specifically cancer must exist. It could, it's just the fact that something like cancer could exist. Uh, or something like polio or malaria or any sort of bad thing. And then the fact that it could exist is going to be something that the creatures might um, be victims of, but in moving towards the ideal world, they're going to make it so that that sort of thing can no longer exist. Yeah. Yeah. If you focus too much on the elimination of evil, it does pretty quickly dev does, like devolve into absurdity where right. like, I think that, um, Philip Goff has this example of um, like one of his little thought experiments about why he can't really accept the traditional like omni god is um, you know there are too many theodicies that feel to him like this scenario where you are walking by a building and it's on fire and then you hear like a baby crying and then like you like run through the door and you like rescue this baby and like you uh, like come outside 
and then um then like the camera crew comes out and they're just like wow good job like uh, you were just on like will you save this baby or whatever it's like a, a game show like when you think about god kind of setting up the world a lot of like the theodicies make thing like make evil like just so trivial and like the the elimination of it and like um you know moral behavior it just really trivializes things such that it's like yeah it, it just feels like a farce but yeah i i was getting that sense and then i like you said you know if you focus too much on the elimination of evil then like yeah god might as well have created us with this like you know horrible like whack-a-mole scenario and then right. like that would be a wonderful existence if we're just like frantically trying to like save people from drowning and that's just our whole <laughs> whole existence but yeah there's this other side of the ledger where it's like the creation of goods <laughs> like right. we like freely participate in the creation of goods um you know and you open your uh the you know your paper that you just wrote about this with the example of um you know kids helping their dad make breakfast for their mom mm -hmm. and it's like yeah like the kids really are like making the eggs you know that's why they kind of suck like that's why they're not as good as they could be if you, if you just yeah. let the dad do it but the point is that like everyone is like making her breakfast or whatever and yeah and then the thought experiment is like so do you think the mom is going to be like these eggs suck <laughs> like even though they are like objectively less good like in right. some reason so in some ways um things will be better because of creative participation but in other ways you know maybe things would actually not be as good if if yeah. god just did it but the whole point is that um you know our participation which can be meaningful you know it's it's not just this like very shallow participation like no we're the ones actually making the eggs you know you can tell because they're not as good as they would have been like if, uh, if god made them but um yeah so i mean i think that our uh, our participation you know it does create like unique goods in the world and uh there was sort of a like a minor objection to this that mm -hmm. I've heard other people make um which is like a good opportunity to clarify um yeah. the theodicy along these kind of similar lines so um why didn't God create us like all in hell basically? And then we can oh, yeah, yeah. so much more improvement, you know, there's like so much more participation and, and, you know, like collaboration, you know, if we had just started us off in an even less ideal world, you know, like all the way straight down to like the worst possible misery for everyone. So why didn't God start us off in like a psychophysically disharmonious state with like the worst possible misery for everyone? Yeah, no, it's, and especially since like, some of the reasoning behind the theodicy, it's easy to sort of see how, yeah, that could be like a sort of like an assumption or an entailment that we could see like, yeah, if it would be better, if for every good state of affairs, it would be better for God to like create an initially less good state of affairs so that the creatures could contribute towards that good state of affairs. It seems like we could just keep going further and further back to where like, well, okay, God created a world in which a trillion people are all eternally suffering in hell. Uh, or some sort of hellish existence so that somebody could contribute towards one less person <laughs> existing in that sort of horrible state. And then that one person could then go further. It seems like, yeah, it would be really bad if like God were to like create people initially in this horrible state of affairs, just so that they could like make it a little bit less shitty. And I think that's where um, the, the point that I want to hone in on and the difference between like how I want to present my participation theodicy and then the reasoning behind that sort of hell world sort of example is that the people in the hell world aren't actually doing something intrinsically good. They're doing something extrinsically good. They're doing something good that is, they're doing something that is good only because it makes the world less bad. <laughs> like just by the fact that you're making it 
the world a little bit less bad for one person. That's not necessarily like doing something that's worth doing for its own sake. It's only worth doing given the circumstances that you find yourself in. But when talking about the uh, ideal, uh, the causal contribution towards the ideal uh, state of the world, that's not going to be something that is going to have to reference some circumstance that you happen to find yourself in. It's not the case that like, oh, we um, want to, God wants us to causally contribute towards the ideal state of the world because you exist in this bad state of the world. No, it's because that's something worth doing for its own sake. It's not something worth doing just because of how bad the world currently is. But yeah, I think that if God were to create us in this like horrible hellish type world, then that wouldn't be an instance where creatures are doing in, intrinsically good things in, in moving towards the ideal world. Rather, they're doing only extrinsically good things. Plus, there's also the concern that, yeah, by creating us in that situation, it's just going to be like an intrinsically evil action on God's part. Uh, and so like, rather, God should create creatures in a, in a world that is mostly neutral, but bad things can occur and like accumulate for sure. But that's going to be less of something that God does like on his own, but it's rather something that happens as a sort of consequence or byproduct of the creation act. I guess I'm I'm not really seeing the difference between that scenario and the situation where we actually find ourselves. Um, I mean, isn't that what we're doing anyway? Like we're improving the world in both intrinsic and extrinsic ways. And that's exactly what people in like the more hellish world would be doing. Uh, I possibly like, the question is just about like how do you like how did god decide the lower limit of like where to start things like you know what i mean like he started a, like okay so here's the you know a, a you know a bunch of ideal states that we could all that we could progress towards and then he has to kind of go down the line and pick somewhere that's not the ideal state um but like where <laughs> like how bad can things get like and why was it like right where we ended up or like right where we started i mean yeah so i guess um when we talk about an ideal world we can talk about the intrinsically good features that it has and the extrinsically good features that it might have and i don't think god is like motivated in allowing creatures to contribute towards the extrinsically good features of the world like we could say oh, some fact about the, an ideal world is that no one's constantly on fire during it. <laughs> and so that's going to be an extrinsically good fact about being within that ideal world. And so... Um, I'm not totally clear on the intrinsic-extrinsic thing here because... Yeah. I, so it's it's a mere extrinsic good that we're not all on fire right now. I'm not, I'm not quite sure of the significance of that. No, yeah. Okay, so uh, David Lewis, he was like actually an Australian sort of uh, modern philosopher that sort of clarify these sorts of differences between intrinsic properties and extrinsic properties. An intrinsic property is something that's going to be had in virtue of that thing that it, that it is. So like my phone here, let's say is intrinsically black. Uh, like it has the features and we're going to talk about the features that it has. Now, extrinsically, we could say that my phone is darker than my shirt. So that's going to be an extrinsic feature because in order to say that this is darker than this shirt, we're going to have to refer to something other than the phone itself. And so, uh, and then like, it could be the case that I put on a black shirt, which is actually darker than this. And this phone doesn't change in any way. And then it would no longer be true that this phone is darker than this shirt. So that would be an extrinsic property, a property that is true, not only in virtue of the thing that it is and the properties that it has, but also in virtue of the relationship that it bears to either other things or the lack of other things. 
Um, so like in my paper, I bring up the, the property of being the last cookie. Uh, and we could talk about like in a cookie jar, what makes it true that this is the last cookie is not going to be wholly in virtue of the, the properties that the cookie has, but also in virtue of the fact that there are no other cookies within that jar. And so that's going to be because we have to refer to other things or the lack of other things. That's going to mean that this property of being the last cookie is an extrinsic fact, uh, is an extrinsic property. So yeah, anyway, and you that, mentioned the like tallness as well. Like yeah. um, you can say that someone is like whatever height they are. But if you want to say that they're tall, I mean, that's kind of like an extrinsic thing because it's in, in relation to, to what? <laughs> like, right. um, you know, to like a class of kindergartners. Yeah, you're very tall. Like yeah. in comparison to NBA players, like, no. Um, right. But yeah, like you can talk about something intrinsic about height, you know, but then if you want to say someone is tall, then that's kind of an extrinsic feature, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then so bringing that sort of connection of understanding intrinsic and extrinsic and connecting it to things being intrinsically good, that means it's worth having or desiring uh, in virtue of the features that it has versus something being extrinsically good, which is worth desiring or having in virtue of the, the things that it avoids, basically. So uh, in the in the paper, I bring up the, we can talk about how it was good that in a car accident, no one was injured. But when we say it was good, we're not saying it in the intrinsically good sense. We're saying it in the extrinsically good sense. Like when we compare the world in which no one was injured to the world in which someone was injured, the world in which no one was injured has less bad things in it. So we can say it's better uh, or it's good that this occurs. But that's going to be a sort of like almost equivocal use of good. Or I mean, it, it's it's a legitimate use of good. It's just going to be using good in a specific sort of way. And so what I want to say is that in an ideal world, the sorts of goods that God is inclined towards allowing creatures to participate in bringing about are only going to be the intrinsic goods. So the extrinsic goods of, say, the fact that not everyone is on fire <laughs> is not the sort of good that God is interested in allowing creatures to contribute towards. Um, and because of that, it's, we're not going to get the entailment that, oh, a better world would be one in which everyone is all on fire. <laughs> and then so that creatures could like put each other out. Uh, so that's, that's at least how I want to sort of avoid that sort of hell world entailment. And I think, I don't know, at least to me, it makes uh, enough sense, but it does require like really considering, uh, okay, is this an intrinsically good thing or an extrinsically good thing? And it does require like a, a, a careful consideration of all those facts. Okay. Well, I'm not really seeing it right now, but I'll, I'll have to think more about it. Um, okay. Yeah, because I'm still just not seeing, like, okay, but still, why here and not there? Like, why did God make the world, like, in this non-ideal state, but why didn't he make it even less ideal? Because <laughs> um, it seems like, you know, there are going to be these um, intrinsic and extrinsic goods. Like, you know, they're in our world, they're in, the, in right. this hypothetical world. Like, there's no getting away from them entirely. Yeah. So I just don't really see how it's like, oh, well, this is what explains why God created this particular non-ideal world instead of an even more awful one. It's like, well, I mean, the whole like intrinsic and extrinsic good thing, it seems to be at play in our world. It's not like that was avoided. Oh, like the fact that um, there are some things that are only good in virtue of the, the fact that it avoids bad things. Is that what yeah, you're I mean, it's, I, I just don't get how it answers the, the question. Yeah. Um, so the question is, like, why is it the case that God started things off with, like, the Big Bang rather than a world in which you already had creatures that were, like, contributing towards avoiding suffering? 
And I think that the, the, the theodicy only says like, you know, there's, there are ideal worlds and mm-hmm. there are non-ideal worlds. And yeah. here's why God like started us off in non-ideal worlds. And like, that's not under, that's not like being questioned here. The thing that's being questioned is just like, like the, well, there's a range of non-ideal worlds, and some of them are way worse than than other ones. And it's like, so things are not as bad as they could be. They're also not as good as they could be. So why here and not there, or a little bit farther up the chain, or a little bit farther down the chain? Yeah, I guess, as I see it, the reasoning within the theodicy I present is going to say that the very best sort of thing that God could do would be create a world in which for every good thing that could, uh, for every intrinsically good feature of an ideal world, creatures could contribute towards bringing about that intrinsically good thing. But if we could talk about even worse non-ideal worlds in which there are these extrinsically good things that creatures could contribute towards bringing about. And I just don't think that God would have any real reason to bring about those worst types of worlds, but rather create the sorts of worlds in which only these intrinsically good things are worth bringing about. Okay. I mean, I'll, I'll have to think more about that, but it does seem, like I said, it just seems like he could have taken away more intrinsic goods so we could, you know, causally contribute to bringing about more intrinsic goods, you know? Like, right. there could be even fewer intrinsic goods, and then there would be more participation in bringing about more intrinsic goods. Um, and like I said, I don't think that in our world it's like, oh, well, there are no, like, you know, like... Uh, like you're saying, God is not interested in, in just the uh, bringing about of extrinsic goods. But, you know, that is part of our participation. You know, like we were kind of, it's not quite as bad as the, uh, you know, the camera crew thing where you run into the burning building and it's all just like a TV show or something like that. Um, it's not quite that bad. But I, I don't know, some of it does kind of seem like we were given these somewhat trivial tasks that like, I'm trying to think of one that would that would make sense. Like, that would like fit into the extrinsic good category. But, you know, like, don't you think that like flesh eating bacteria or something like just like getting rid of that, like, yeah, that's a good thing. But like, do we really need like flesh eating bacteria to begin with? Like, did we have to start off with flesh eating bacteria? Yeah. Yeah. I I get what you're saying. Yeah. It seems like the getting rid of flesh eating bacteria or like malaria or something like that. These are like good things, but they're only good in an extrinsic sense because the world in which they are not here in which they can deprive creatures of like their well-being is going to be a better world than a world in which they can occur. And I think that, yeah, if it were the case that God sort of like created the world initially with flesh-eating bacteria and malaria and these sorts of parasites and stuff like that, that would be like God basically creating a world that was already started off pretty shitty. <laughs> but rather, yeah, like I, we're, we're running into the burning building and pulling out the baby and it's like, well, that's good, I guess, but like, like flesh-eating bacteria. Um, but yeah, but right. like in, intrinsic good, you know, like if there's more love in the world or something like that, like that seems like it's an intrinsic good, whereas like eliminating flesh-eating bacteria, that would be an extrinsic good. Right. But, you know, in our world, there's flesh-eating bacteria. And like, right, right. it seems like the participation theodicy is saying like, hey, like there's flesh-eating bacteria because we're going, you know, so we can eliminate it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so uh, I, I think that the... Uh, the feature of an ideal world would be something like there is something in that world which prevents something like flesh-eating bacteria from depriving creatures of well-being. And I think that's going to be an intrinsic feature of that world. Like, we're talking about something actual, real, and we're not having to talk about the relationship that it bears to other things, but rather it's like a, a real thing with some sort of feature. It's like maybe it's the case, 
know, in an ideal world, uh, yeah, creatures are just immune to flesh-eating bacteria or something like that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I want to say that the in an ideal world, it's impossible for flesh-eating bacteria to occur. And in a non-ideal world, and that's like an intrinsically good thing, that it's impossible for this to occur. And then in a non-ideal world, it is possible for this sort of bad thing to occur. But it's not like ensured that it's going to occur. Um, like theoretically, we could have evolved uh, in, in such a way in which flesh-eating bacteria is not going to be a problem. There's probably other problems that we would have to deal with, but um, that's at least one theoretical branch in which evolution could have taken place. But yeah, no, it's, it's a good um, objection. And it's one that I probably need to put more careful consideration into and a more careful articulation because I do think that this point in, in talking about intrinsic versus extrinsic goods is going to be the most important point to sort of realize in order to like really get the reasoning behind the theodicy. But it could also very well be the case that that's going to be a short side of my theodicy that it needs to be uh, more carefully considered on my part. So I appreciate no, I, it. Yeah, yeah no, I, I think that you're definitely onto something with like the distinction between intrinsic and extrinsic goods, because I think that the theodicy is like best suited to explain why there aren't more intrinsic goods in the world. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, we get to like causally contribute and participate in the creation of like there being more love in the world, which is an intrinsically good thing. Um, but then like when it comes to the extrinsic goods, that's when it does start to feel like Philip Goff's like TV crew scenario where we've, we've just been given these like meaningless tasks of like, Hey, I set up this horrible thing for you to stop. It's like, thanks God. I really appreciate it. <laughs> like, yeah, it's so like the elimination of certain evils. It does feel like, man, like, yeah, I don't think the theodicy is like super well suited to address some of those because um, it does feel like God is just tasking us with this meaningless stuff. It's just like so much suffering. And then at the end of it, all we did was eliminate this bad thing that like, you know, we're not really, and I mean, I guess indirectly there's more intrinsically valuable things when we like preserve life by like eliminating disease or something like that. Um but still, man, it's just, uh, it's like there are certain, there are different areas where your theodicy seems to like, you know, oh yeah, like that kind of makes sense. Like we get to causally contribute to um, the creation of this good thing. But in other areas, it definitely does not seem, like when you start filling it in with concrete examples, it's like, I don't know if that really explains right. it. Um, yeah, but I mean, yeah, I think you've been in the hot seat long enough. We can start to, uh, to wrap it up here. But um, I did want to, end on something that we mentioned uh early on and i think it's going to be in the in the in the patron only version so sorry to the people who are watching this on youtube or something but um we free kind of, out there. <laughs> we kind of meandered through for like 40 minutes like why we didn't like some other theodicies and it took us like you know 40 minutes to actually get to the participation theodicy so in the version i'm putting out there we're just starting off with the participation theodicy but we talked about um josh rasmussen's analogy that he uses when he's teaching people about the problem of evil and how it helped, uh, you know, it made something click for me that um, I think is, it seems so obvious when you say it and you're like, you know, like I felt like an idiot the first time, like I heard him say this and like, oh man, I'm just now getting this like very basic point about like arguments from evil. But then when you look at like the discussions about arguments from evil, like the back and forth you see between atheists and theists, it's clear that a lot of people don't understand this. So anyway, the analogy being, you know, he pulls out this pitcher full of red paint or red liquid or something. And he says, you know, this kind of represents all of the evil in the world. 
you know, all of the predation and like every, every major thing, every minor thing, you know, every like stubbed toe to every like fawn in the forest that burns alive. And, you know, so theodicies are, you know, their attempts to explain the suffering we see in the world, the evil we see in the world, and like to provide a moral rationale behind the kind degree and distribution of suffering we see. So he lays out these different like, you know, bowls and jars and cups. And it's like, okay, each of these is like a theodicy. And they no no one of them can hold all of the red liquid that's in this giant pitcher. Um, so this one theodicy, you know, it can hold like, you know, some amount of red paint. This other like big bowl can, you know, hold a little more red paint. This little thimble that represents the free will theodicy can hold uh, some red paint. And then like, you know, you have all these different containers and um, at the end of it, you know, there's probably still going to be some red paint over. Like that's how, uh, that's how Josh described it where he's like, yeah, for, I mean, for me personally, there's always stuff left over. Right. Um, so, you know, I'm glad that he uh, admitted that at least because I, I don't really think there's any, um, you know, first of all, there's definitely no like totalizing theodicy where you just have a gigantic bowl and you just transfer all of the red paint from the picture into this one thing. And that's what some people try to do with like free will or with soul building or something where they just stretch the theodicies like, you know, the red liquid's overflowing, it's going all over the desk and on the floor, and they're like, this is fine. It's still, it's, it's it entertaining all of it. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, the point being that you take advantage of many, many different theodicies to try to explain all the evil in the world. You don't over-rely on just one theodicy. And, like, so this is why I say, even though it seems so basic, like, yeah, of course, you take advantage of, of all the theodicies, you know, like, there doesn't have to be any one that's like a totalizing theodicy that explains all of it. The reason I think that a lot of people don't get this is because atheists will often look at, and also other Christians who are criticizing theodicies they don't like, they will, you know, basically point out a couple of counterexamples to a theodicy, like, well, here's some suffering that doesn't have anything to do with free will, and here's some suffering that doesn't contribute to soul building, and they're just like, so that theodicy is garbage, you know, just throw it out. It's like complete trash. Yeah. And it's like, and like, uh, atheists especially will be like, well, look, here's a counterexample. Here's another counterexample. Here's another counterexample. Theodicy debunked. And it's like, well, maybe those other, maybe those are, those are genuine counterexamples, but maybe there are other theodicies that can account for those. And you say, oh, well, this theodicy that you just, you know, brought up, well, here are some counterexamples to those. It's like, yeah, man, like we have many different, like, you know, bowls and jars and cups here. Um, no one of them has to hold all of the red liquid in this picture. So, um, and then theists likewise will resist the idea that there are any limits to their favorite theodicy. So like they will stretch it. Like I said, they'll, it'll just be overflowing and they're just pretending that it's not overflowing. Um, yeah. so there's just this stupid back and forth between atheists and theists, like theists pretending that their theodicy can explain all the evil in the world. Um, you know, their favorite one, when it obviously can't, they're stretching it way beyond its limit. And then atheists who think that that proves that, like, you know, all the theodicies just totally fail. And it's like, no, they're supposed to all kind of work together, like, collaboratively and collectively. So regardless of, you know, the limitations of the participation theodicy, I think it's definitely a container that's on the table that can hold some of the red liquid, you know? Like, like I think that some of the evil in the world is justified by soul-building. You know, like, some of the evil in the world is plausibly justified by saying, like, hey, you couldn't have had these good things without these evil things. Like, the evil is necessary for the good, and not even an omnipotent being could have brought about these goods without these necessary evils. Um, or even something like free will. So, you know, I think that, you know, 
virtually all the theodicies that have been offered they're at least you know at least like a thimble or something like they they can hold they can explain at least an instance of evil that's occurred in the world um yeah so at the end of the day i still think there's a ton of red liquid left over in the pitcher whereas you probably think there's a lot less which is why i'm an atheist and you're a theist um but yeah, I think that maybe there could be like a more productive and like collaborative discussion between atheists and theists if they recognize that, you know, um, no one theodicy has to do it all. And just because there are counterexamples doesn't mean that, that, you know, the theodicy is useless and like just throw it out or whatever. And like I said, I think there's evidence that both theists and atheists like fail to realize this. So the moral of the story is more people should be listening to Josh Rasmussen. That's my conclusion. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good conclusion. I, I'm glad you actually rearticulated that because, like, I was trying. My stupid brain was like <laughs> trying to think about this uh, analogy, and in my head, I was thinking a picture rather than a pitcher, which you would pour in. <laughs> so I was like, my, I was like really strained to think. Oh, okay, so there's this picture that has like all this red paint part on it, and then you have to like dribble out all the paint that, into these cans and stuff. Like that. No, it makes a lot more sense. You have a, a pitcher full of liquid, and then you're just pouring out all the different cups and stuff like that. Okay. What the uh, fuck? I can't believe you just let me go on like that the, earlier when you thought I was talking about a red picture. I don't know. I Josh Rasmussen analogy, so like maybe he has this very realist <laughs> sort of like idea. Like you're like, yeah, it's it's. It's Rasmussen. It's gonna be weird. Like it's <laughs> just like I'm entering like you know the David Lynch zone. So it's gonna be bizarre. And it's yeah. just like no, it's a pitcher of red liquid. <laughs> that I think you're pouring into jars. Yeah, I think part of the reason I thought that is because the skeptical theist response, or sometimes like a, a sort of aesthetic response towards the problem of evil, is like sure when we zoom in on this like very little amount of the world it seems like, oh, there could be no reasons for this. But when we zoom out to see the entire picture of this uh, thing that an artist is drawing, then we can, like, see how it all connects to the whole. And so, like, I was, like, primed with that from skeptical theists to think, like, okay, we had this picture with a red paint on it. And then, like, wait, were you taking all the paint off of the picture? <laughs> it's just like, okay, that's weird. <laughs> that is crazy that you just let me go on for that long. And, like, earlier, like, not just now. So earlier, just, I mean, like, just now, you heard me say picture from the beginning right yeah yeah this time i did yeah. okay but the first time earlier you thought that i said picture. oh now it makes sense i cannot believe that you just let me keep talking when it was not yeah i don't know what that says about you where you'll just listen yeah, to someone who's talking about absolute nonsense and you're just like yeah i kind of see that. I mean, like maybe if the picture is like or the picture is still has wet paint on it then like oh no we have too much paint we have to get rid of some of it oh <laughs> some very strained analogy but i was like okay yeah i can follow along kind of and i think i'm saying this like really profound like meaningful thing and you're just like what in the hell are you talking about <laughs> okay yeah, so for those, I should have just did. I don't think Rasmussen even says pitcher. I think he says something else. I think he says it's like in a big jar or something. <laughs> so if I had just stuck to the plan, you know, I had to put yeah. my own special little spin on it and say yeah. it's a big pitcher. But, you know, if it's a big jar, it's just in my in my stupid brain. I'm like, but that would be harder to pour out than like if you just had like a big like pitcher. <laughs> and he also, he also always says red liquid, but I thought red paint was a little more poetic. Yeah. Um you you and your artistic analogies <laughs> well at first i mean really we should just make it blood it should just be a big picture of yeah blood. there you go that would be, 
Uh, anyway, that might be. It would also be funny if he walked into class with his like freshman like philosophy. He's like, "This is a big picture of blood." Um, okay, so anyway, we got to yeah. do something with this blood, boys and girls. Like, give me all the <laughs> give me all the cups that you can have. We got to pour out as much as we can. Yeah. Um. Well, I guess on that note, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on? Um. Before we uh before we go, we've been. I mean, at least for recording, we're we're past the three hour mark. So okay. some of this will be edited out. Um. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think that, um, at least for the, the patron version here is like three hours. Um, so anyway, patreon.com slash counter, check it out, people. <laughs> I was going to say at least an hour and a half of that must've been your ranting against skeptical theism, as I recall. So. Yeah, I didn't rant against skeptical theism at all. I kept it to a minimum. I really thought to myself, I was like, don't even say anything. It's going to become the entire episode <laughs> if you start talking about it. So I just, I think I, I remember being like, just go listen to my episode about it where I calmly explain why I don't like skepticism. Also, there was just a really good interview on Adherent Apologetics with Nevin Clemenhaga, Cleminga. Cle you, know, you know who I'm talking I always screw up his name. I have no idea. No. No, you know who he is. He's like the, uh, he knows a lot about like Bayesian stuff. Nevin Clemenhaga. <laughs> <laughs> you know who this is okay. he's a really cool guy he's really smart i just i always read his name i never have to say it out loud and okay. like it's a weird name i think it's like clemen haga that's what i'm gonna go with okay cool. sorry nevin but anyway he's a really cool guy and <laughs> he was just interviewed on um adherent apologetics about skeptical theism and how it kind of entails this like more general skepticism about the probability of theism not because of some parody argument not because of like well by analogy if you're skeptical about the argument from evil then you have to be skeptical about arguments from religious experience or something that's not the point the point is that if the probability of evil on theism and on atheism is totally inscrutable meaning it's like between zero and one and you have you're totally in the dark about where it falls between those then that means that the probability of theism is inscrutable because any like reasonable assessment of theism is going to take into account evil so if you've already said like the probability of you know all these observations like it's a gigantic question mark it's between zero and one and that's all i can tell you because we're totally in the dark um so then when you're trying to do your more general like bayesian calculation about the probability of theism well, then, like, that means the probability of theism is inscrutable because you have this thing that you're factoring into the calculation that goes between zero and one. Oh, so, like, the probability right. of theism is somewhere between, you know, it's either um, extremely low to the point where you're crazy if you believe it or overwhelmingly probable. And we don't know which one it is because you've already accepted skeptical right. theism and, like, said that the probability of evil on theism is inscrutable. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. That's a, that's a really interesting response. Yeah. It'd be yeah. interesting to see how skeptical theists might even like try to respond to something like that. But apparently the, like the Weikstra in Perrin paper about skeptical theism, apparently they like, I can't remember the paper well enough, but, um, Nevin said that like, well, the way that they set things up is like, they kind of avoid, you know, this particular argument. So it's focused narrowly on like, uh, you know, certain types of skeptical theism. So some skeptical theists, according to Nevin, can like avoid this type of criticism. Um, but yeah, no, I thought it was a really, a really interesting argument against skeptical theism. 
Yeah. And I'll, I'll just repeat again that your episodes on responding to skeptical theism were something that for myself sort of convinced me that, yeah, like given my sort of epistemological commitments, uh, I don't think I can like legitimately hold to skeptical theism or at least find it as a very plausible response to the problem of evil. And it was, it was through like angrily listening back to, to your podcast episodes, like, damn it, he's got some points here. It's like, no, it can't be. And then like, they, like putting it out of my mind for a month or so and then returning back to it, it's like, damn it, he's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's cool. Yeah, because I think that if you do accept phenomenal conservatism, you are totally like committed to rejecting skeptical theism. <laughs> like, you know, it obviously seems like there are unjustified evils. And it's like, um, yeah, if it, like, and like I, I mentioned, I think this as well at the beginning, um, where Swinburne's, you know, principle of credulity is like, it's not the same thing as phenomenal conservatism, but it's, you know, kind of similar. Yeah. And the principle of credulity has been, you know, invoked as like, well, here's why you can't really be a skeptical theist. Um, but yeah, if you're a phenomenal conservative, then I don't see how you could simultaneously be this kind of like radical skeptic about your own faculties and like, oh, well, there aren't really any defeaters, but you know, it still can't be justified, even though like there's plenty of evil that seems gratuitous. Um, and there's like a there's like a follow up conversation to be had about like, what do you mean it seems like there's gratuitous evil? You know, because like that's a fairly like philosophically laden seeming that you're having there. Like it's not, you know, like saying that like well it seems to me that there is a jar on my desk. Like, yeah, I, it's it's easy to see how one could have a seeming or an appearance of a jar on your desk. But if you say, well, it seems to me, and then it's like a paragraph of like philosophically dense text, it's like, what are you talking about? Like, there's no way that that just see like, yeah. And, and humor has talked as well about like, you know, with strange appearances that people try to give as counterexamples to skeptic to a phenomenal conservatism. Mm-hmm. He's like, I don't even know what it would mean to have some of these seemings where they're like, what if you just see a tree and it seems to you that it was planted on April 3rd, 1895. And he's like, what are you talking about? Like, how would you even have a seeming like that? What would that be like? Right. Um, our seemings are like a lot more basic than that. You know, they're right. not like super, super complicated. Um, and then our more complicated judgments are, yeah, they're ultimately based on seemings, but like, it's it's weird to say, oh, I have a seeming that, um, anyway, I'm trying to steel man this, this objection where it's like, oh, it, how could it seem to you that there's gratuitous suffering? But I think you can break it down into its component parts, you know, it's really easy to have a seeming that there's, um, you know, uh, evil that is, uh, like ultimately purposeless or like evil that's pointless or evil that doesn't serve any greater good. Or it's like, it would be an unambiguously good thing if this evil were eliminated, you know, like you can definitely have seemings like that where you're just like, this shouldn't just, this should just not happen. You know, like we should get rid of this if we can, you know, everyone has seemings like that. And that's what skeptical theists are committed to, uh, being skeptical about, you know? Um, even though there's like no defeater for it, but anyway. Yeah. Last thing I wanted to at least bring up in regards to uh, my theodicy and even like sort of connecting it up to Josh Rasmussen's sort of like point about how theodicies can play different roles. I at least think that maybe my theodicy is not going to be able to perfectly at, uh, account for all the evils that we observe in the world, but it does seem like it is serves as a, as a decent response to something like Graham Oppie's argument uh, from evil in regards to like heaven, like our Graham Oppie has this sort of like, I don't know, I want to say like eight premise argument that's something like uh, God could create a heavenly world. It would be great for God to create a heavenly world. And so God should create a heavenly world, but we don't exist in a heavenly world. Therefore God didn't create this world or something like that. And I think that like, at least the reasoning behind my participation, the Odyssey can respond to that to say why God might 
decide to not create a heavenly world initially right off the bat, but rather create a non-heavenly world prior to that so that creatures could contribute towards that heavenly world. And then, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, I wish I would have uh, come prepared with that argument. But yeah, the problem of heaven, I think he co-authored that with Yuji Nagasawa. Mm. Um, but yeah, I always liked that argument. So I'd be curious to see how that interacts with the... Uh, participation theodicy now i feel like a moron for not bringing it up because it's such an obvious th yeah like yeah the problem of heaven you know yeah. why didn't we just start off in heaven i think we might have mentioned that a couple times but yeah no that that might be worth um doing something you know on your own maybe of just like seeing how your theodicy interacts yeah. with, with an argument like that yeah, um, yeah but yeah no it's worth its own thing and then yeah, we talked a little bit about how it might interact with like hiddenness arguments but yeah we should have gone into the heaven thing too yeah that's a good point yeah uh, and then also the point you're bringing up, well, like maybe my theodicy doesn't actually adequately respond to the concrete examples of evil that we observe in the world. And yeah, I kind of like agree in a sense that like if we were to think that, okay, there's this particular evil in the world. And so how is it that my particular theodicy answers like, okay, why is it that this particular concrete example of evil occurs in the world? And I don't think it actually does. I think that the best that it could maybe do is answer why that sort of particular concrete sort of evil could occur, not that it actually will occur. And so I want to say that in non-ideal worlds, there's a lot of evils that can occur, but it's not necessarily the case that those sorts of evils will occur. And so I think that's maybe, yeah, this is where I'm not quite even sure if like, is my theodicy technically a defense? Because I'm just saying that like, no, all these sorts of evils are actually just consistent with God's being all good. Uh, or is it actually like a like theodicy where it's like, no, given part the the great good of participation we should expect these sorts of evils that might take place and i'm i don't know that's sort of an area just for myself to really like hone in on like is this more of a defense or a theodicy here or or are those the the boundary between those two things not really that strict i don't know yeah no that, that's an interesting question and another interesting question that's worth getting into is uh, whether your theodicy is capable of dealing with gratuitous suffering or not, that's something that we didn't really mm -hmm. get into, um, about like, you know, because if it's necessary that there's a non-ideal state in order to participate in going from a non-ideal state to an ideal state, then that means it's not really explaining gratuitous suffering because then it's, it's you know, it's necessary, <laughs> like right. it's a necessary precondition. Um, but the thing is like, I can't remember exactly how we got here. Like I said, we're, we're going to actually end it here because we've been we've been uh, talking for a long time. But, you know, there's there's more to talk about. You know, we've been talking for a long time and there's still a ton more to talk about with regards to, to this theodicy and obviously with arguments from evil and everything. But um, it seems like your theodicy might have something to say about why gratuitous suffering exists with like missed opportunities, I guess. You know, mm -hmm. because in your theodicy, it's not like, well... We're in this non-ideal scenario, and then we will always successfully contribute to like improving the world or creating more intrinsic goods or something like that. So there could be like actually pointless evil, you know, mm -hmm. because in the, that sort of was the byproduct of like missed opportunities that like we just kind of failed to take because there that was always an option, you know, yeah. being you know being like genuinely autonomous. Like no, it was not a predetermined conclusion that you were going to like contribute in this really helpful, great way, like. No, you could like whether or not your life is like sort of meaningful in this like participatory creation of the good is actually up to you. You know, right. like you you might actually not really participate in the creation of the good. And then there will be all this gratuitous evil that didn't have to be gratuitous evil, but it is now because you like uh, you know, it was actually up to you and you, you know, you kind of like morally failed, and that's why this 
unnecessary suffering existed. But it's sort of like this gratuitous suffering like didn't have to be gratuitous, but it kind of ended up being gratuitous because of missed opportunities to participate in eliminating evil or creating good. Yeah, it does seem like maybe it's almost like a byproduct of God's creating a non-ideal world. And so, I don't know, you could technically say, yeah, God could create that ideal world without creaturely participation. And so there is a sense in which, like, yeah, the great good of an ideal world is not uh, doesn't require <laughs> creaturely participation. So, like, in some sense, it's gratuitous, I guess. So, I don't know. It seems like there would have to be a very specific definition of gratuitous and then uh, a careful analysis as to whether or not my theodicy allows for that or not. Yeah. Well, uh, I think we should end it there. Um, like I said, we could go on. Um, there's so much more to talk about, but um, now seems as good a place to end as any. So, uh, you know, like you said, you don't really have like a, you know, it's not like you have a channel or, or a podcast or anything, but do you want people to find you on Twitter or um, on YouTube where you, I mean, you do have a couple things posted on YouTube. Yeah, sure. In fact, I, I've been meaning to actually put something out on my YouTube channel, probably just like reading out the paper for people to be able to like listen to, because I at least find for myself, it's a lot easier for me to like listen to stuff on YouTube than actually go through the process of reading a paper from some Joe Blow. Uh, so yeah, uh, look out for my uh, YouTube channel. It's like only titled John Buck. So it's going to be heavily hard to find unless you go to my Twitter, which is writer John Buck, J-O-H-N-B-U-C-K. And I'll also actually have uh, on my Twitter uh, my paper pinned for anybody that wants to read it. But yeah, it, and then from my Twitter, you could probably find my YouTube channel. But if you wanted to go directly to YouTube, you can Google Tom Jump's Biggest Blenders. And then I have like a, a two-hour video. That's the fastest that's way to find you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like one, my one piece of content that's actually out there that people are interested in. But like I, I had fun making that anyway. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so you had fun sifting through hours and hours of T-Jumps content. Um, sadly, that video was compiled before um, I spoke to him. That's right. Yeah. Um, so none of those made it in there. Um, yeah, there's a lot of good <laughs> moments from that debate that you had with T-Jump. Like the very. <laughs> I would, you know, in my opinion, there were not any good moments from that. <laughs> we're extrinsically good. Don't worry. <laughs> um. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. I'll put links in the show notes to your Twitter and to your YouTube. And uh, yeah, for the patrons, thank you for supporting the podcast. Um, you can support at patreon.com slash counter or slash Walden pod if for some reason that's the one you like more. Um, but yeah, thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.